you know, she was into it, the girl. And we laid her on one of those cement tables, you know, like the way they play checkers or chess on. Yeah. They lay her on the table and they take this heavy sword, like from the Renaissance age, this kind of looking sword. And when she thinks she's going to be blessed with it, the president of the biker gang actually um, crashes it down on her chest. He says, if you could find that case. What's cooking, everybody? I am joined in the bunker today by Mr. Mike Codella. And if you heard that little intro snippet out front, yeah, this one got pretty fucking nutty. Mike spent over two decades in the NYPD where he served in all kinds of capacities, including working with the DEA and in the Secret Service in official capacities. But the first half of this podcast covers a lot of his work as a narco in planes, clothes and undercover and with the DEA. A lot of good, funny stories in there. And then the second half is where it got fucking insane. And that was mostly involving his work as one of the lead detectives in the missing persons unit at the NYPD. This dude uncovered some crazy shit on some cold cases that included satanic rituals, stuff I've never heard of in my life that's absolutely insane. Some of it obviously wildly scary. And look, it was my first time hearing any of the things that he was presenting here. So it's going to be probably your first time hearing it too. These are things that As you'll find out, some of it ended up getting shut down internally, investigations, so we'll never know the truth publicly. But judge for yourselves. My head's still spinning. I don't know what to believe, but I really, really appreciate how Mike presented it because he just told you what he found and some wild shit, like I said. So if you are not already subscribed, please hit that subscribe button. As always, hit that thumb button right there, that like. We need that. We love that. If you're on your phone, take your own thumb, hit the thumb. If you're on the computer, take the mouse, hit the thumb. You know the drill. Everybody down in the comments section, let's get the party rolling. And to everyone who's been sharing these episodes with friends and on social media, thank you so much. That's the number one thing we can get. Let's get that train rolling even more. You guys are the people who drive this show. Couldn't do it without you. So let's let's pump it into overdrive, shall we? Anyway, that said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory, and this is Train of Fire. Let's go. This is one of the great questions in our culture. Where is the news? You're giving opinions and calling them facts. You feel me? Everyone understands this, but few seem to do it. If you don't like the status quo, start asking questions. Mike Codella. Thanks for coming down here, man. Thanks for having me. And thanks for doing it on short notice, too. I, I know this was like a quick turnaround, but your background was pretty wild. And I was like, we got to get this guy in. I know you're going out of town, so I'm, I'm glad we got to do it. But um, I actually had not had a chance to read through your book yet, which usually when someone comes in here, I've read the book first. So I'm flying blind today. Okay. But I did get the cliff notes when you and I talked about some of the things you've done. So I think your career... You know, obviously you were a cop in the NYPD and everything, but you did like a million things. I did a, I did a few things. <laughs> <laughs> so d- when you grew up, like, did you always want to be a cop or did it just kind of turn out that way? Uh, no, I, I didn't always want to be a cop, to be honest. Uh, for a long time, I just hung out with the wrong crew and saw what that looked like and just lucky to take the test and get called. And then I, once I got called, I decided I really wanted to, you know, be a cop. What, where'd you grow up? Brooklyn, Canasi, Brooklyn. Oh, Canasi kid. Yeah. Yeah, so a few of your buddies went the five family route? Yes. Yeah. That's that's what I hear from It's like 
people that grew up there, you know, maybe like pre-1990 or something like that, it was like everyone became a cop or in the mob. Yeah. No middle ground. Well, some of my friend's fathers were uh, pretty big heavyweights. Any uh, Anyone in particular you're allowed to talk about? Well, Vicar Musso, the head of the Lucchese family. Yeah, I know, uh, I know that one. My friend's, he was my friend's godfather. Wow. And their father actually owned the bar that Vic would hang out in, so to speak. But it was Vic's bar, but under my father's, under my friend's father's name on mm. Flatlands Avenue. Um, and just a bunch of guys, you know, whose fathers were connected and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Did you, like, was there a moment when you were a kid where you kind of, maybe not a kid, but like when you were a teenager or something before becoming a cop where you were like, ooh, this isn't good. I don't want to do this. Yeah, there was two actually. Mm. Two uh, two, two, kind of heavy incidents. So the one, uh, I think this one happened first. I was about 17 and two of my friends, not my close friends, not guys I hung out with every day, and but guys I grew up with and that's the occasion. They wanted to... For a guy named Eddie Lino, I don't know if you're familiar with Eddie Lino. He was a Gotti, Gotti. Top, I don't think so. No. He was one of Gotti's top guys, and the mob, the mafia cops actually kill him on the Bell Parkway eventually. This guy Eddie Lino. Was that the what was that guy's name? Epolito. Epolito and Caracappa. So they killed him. They kill Eddie Lino eventually. Mm. But obviously, prior to that, uh, these two friends of mine, who again I just would knock around once in a blue moon, they said they were going to do. Now Eddie Lino supplied a lot of Canossi guys with cocaine he was mm. a, he was a big deal for, for Gotti's guys and and Canasi guys none of my friends dealt, dealt drugs uh but in any event Eddie Lino one of these guys knew Eddie Lino somehow and there was a bar in Brooklyn in Red Hook Brooklyn and there were joker poker machines in there and cigarette machines in there what do you mean joker poker machines uh joker poker are like these illegal machines and they're in bars and restaurants especially years ago and you put money in, and you you pull the the lever, and you could win money. So it's kind of like a slot machine. It's like kind of like a slot machine, oh, yeah, right. But it's a poker game. But yeah, it's a slot machine. But and they, that was illegal. They were illegal, <clears throat> and they were run by mob guys. Hmm. So there was a a, a closed down uh, bar in Red Hook that had a bunch of Joker poker and other stuff in other machines. And he asked my friend to go to go and even basically heist. These machines mm. on his behalf, on Eddie's behalf, Eddie Lino's behalf. So they, it was two of my friends, and they want, asked me if I would help them out. And there was some money to be made. I, I, to be honest, I didn't need the money that badly. I had a job. I always worked. How old are you? I'm uh, 16, 17. And this is like late 70s, early 80s? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, this is like uh, 1979, 1980. Got it. Right. So, uh, I knew it would be, I knew it'd be fu- you know, fun, for lack of a better term. It would be fun, something to do, you know. So my friends, uh, they get a truck, a hot truck, a uh, you know they steal a uh, like a panel truck, and we go to this place in Red Hook, and I go out the back and I hop over a fence, I get in, and, and I open the front door for them, and we take these Joker poker machines, and they're heavy, and um, and we're in a stolen truck, 
and it's this whole thing. So we get the trucks. I'm sorry, we get the machines. And as we're driving to meet Eddie Lino, cops are behind us with the sirens. So I thought for sure we were pinched. But it wasn't for us. They just went by us. But we get through that. Now we go meet Eddie in this uh, parking lot in Brooklyn, Flappish Avenue, uh, the Marine Park parking lot on Avenue U or off of Avenue U. And Eddie, he's there in this, uh, you know, leaning on his Cadillac. We get out, or my friend's my friend gets out because he knew him. He says, "I'll go talk to him." He tells him we got the machines. Eddie wants us to follow him now to a different location. And when my friend came back to tell me that, I thought it was like a lot of you know a lot of bullshit. Basically, I'm mm. like, I, you know, this ain't the deal, man. We almost got pinched once. This is it, man. I, I'm you know we were supposed to get paid when we got here, <clears throat> and it's not happening. And uh, Eddie Lino hears me argue with my friend, basically. Mm. So he calls me over, and as I walk over, <clears throat> he's obviously pissed off, and he asks me what what's the problem, but not in that terminology. <clears throat> and so I told him I thought this was it. I thought we were coming here getting paid, and and he asks me my name and where I'm from, and I tell him, and he's very uh, condescending towards me. Obviously, he's, a, he's you know he's an adult. I'm sixteen, seventeen. You scared at this point? I'm a little, yeah, at yeah. this point, I'm I'm a little afraid, yeah. And um, I thought he was going to just, to be honest, I thought he was going to hit me, just throw a smack at me or punch me. Uh, he takes out a wad of money and he throws it like in my hand. And he says, all right, basically, you could take, you could get out of here. And he gives me the money. And as I take, turn around, I still thought I was, I thought he was going to shoot me when I turned around. That's how pissed off he was. So that's how pissed off he seemed. So I walk back to my friends and I'm like, uh, obviously he didn't shoot me i go I go, <laughs> I, go, I go i go back i go to my friends all right i'm 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 out of here and they're well where's our money i'm like i don't give a fuck where your money is <laughs> i got my money uh you guys made you made the deal you deal with them and then they end up following him somewhere i don't even know where i get a i call up i get a ride home which wasn't far from my house anyway uh and that was the one incident that kind of make me i said to myself i can't if I can't trust the guys I'm with, meaning him and, and, and down the road, these two guys, just to tell you, you know, not that you, I'm sure you know, but the life that they eventually got caught up in. One guy gets his head decapitated. Oh, wow. It, it washes up in uh, Plum Beach, Brooklyn, in Sheepshead Bay. And the other guy gets a job, uh, an armored truck, working for an armored truck company. And obviously, he decided that wasn't good enough money. Yeah. Right? Suddenly, the truck wasn't armored. Yes. And <laughs> he tries to take the truck. Him and some guys try to take the truck off. And he gets popped, gets caught, and he flips on everybody. Oh. Yeah. It's usually how it goes. Yeah. And so, that, that's just... That was one incident. It sounds like you just were like... You saw whatever the look in his eyes was. I mean, the fact that you turned around and you're like, Oh, fuck, I think he's going to shoot me. That's got to be just whatever that thing on your shoulder is going, all right, this this ain't it, you right. know? Exactly. So that was one time, but there, there there was another time after this. There was another time after. Uh, a guy named Bruno Facciola. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He is... Maybe. Carla from Mob Wives. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, Mob Wives. Anyway, he was her uncle. He, okay. He, uh, Bruno Facciola was her uncle. He was an old-time, old-time wise guy from Canasi that everybody knew. What family? 
uh, Bruno Facciolo was a Lucchese guy, but he had a brother that was a Gambino guy. In fact, he or his brother in the movie Goodfellas is, is portrayed as the guy who takes Tommy DeSimone to his death. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Because one guy was a Gambino, the other guy was a Lucchese, and they had a, a relationship. And when they wanted Tommy killed, he was he killed the Gambino guy. And so the two brothers uh, were called upon to do him in. Anyway. Got it. So now I'm with my real my my close friends, and we're walking home one night, and we stopped by in front of Bruno's. Pe- we didn't know it was his pizzeria, but everybody in Canarsi knew Bruno by name. We just didn't know his face, and we stopped by in front of this pizzeria in Brooklyn, and we're just you know seventeen year old kids, eighteen knock, knocking around, and he comes out and he t- tells us to leave, and of course we ignore him, right? <laughs> Probably not the guy to ignore, <laughs> right? Okay. And he comes out again, and he tells us to leave again. And, of course, we told him, basically, go back inside and make your pizzas. <laughs> right? So, and, and, and during this, I decided, we, we were all on a football team, high school team together, me and my, my friends. And I decided, me and one of the other guys decide to leave. And um, we leave. After we left, Bruno comes out again with a baseball bat. Oh. And my friends... Pretty tough kids. They take the bat from him and do a number on him with the bat. On Bruno? On Bruno. They took the bat from him? Yeah. They, you know, Like I said, they didn't know who he was. He was just, to them, a regular guy from a pizzeria. I guess they'll never know now. Looking huh? for two. Well, <laughs> let's just say he got revenge on everyone there. And the consensus, But not you? Say it again? But not you? No, I had left. Oh, you were gone already. Me and one of the okay, other guys got left. It. Got it. Right. Um, and the consensus was that one of these, one of my friends, and we know who, or we think we know who, uh, ratted everybody out because he um, found out everybody who was there, and everybody got he got retribution on everyone that was there. And are they still breathing? Yeah, one had a plant in his head. One got shot up. The other guy took off for months, and the other guy just took a really, really bad beating. But one of the guys there was Vicar Musso's godson. Mm. Two of them, actually. Mm. And I think Vic was able to keep them from getting killed, basically. Not keep them from getting hurt, but keep the keep the 16, 17-year-old kids from getting killed. Wild how that yeah. goes. I mean, I was a moron when I was 16 or 17, but I do feel like I, that's probably not the guy I was taking the bat from. Well, you know? we, to be honest, we didn't know. You yeah. know? Or they didn't know, you know? But had I been there... Would have been just a bit for me. Now that wasn't one of the pizzerias with like the whole pizza connection thing, was it? No, but it's close, right, right, <laughs> right, right, there. right there, <laughs> right there. That's so right there. There's yeah. a there's a whole another thing. Yeah. But wow. So you, I, I guess you got out of high school, and then how soon after did you become a cop? Uh, I took the test probably when I was like 19, and I got called when I was 20, turning 21. I, so, I went on, I became a cop. So that's kind of like when that happens. Because, again, like a lot of people for, who grew up in the neighborhoods like that, like that's a direction a lot of them went. They went to become a cop if they didn't go the other way. But, like, when that happens, is there, like, a serious change? Like, oh, he's one of them now. Or, like, did you – was just kind of like, oh, no, this is just how it goes? No. When I became a cop, I lost a lot of my friends. Mm. Like those guys. We just – you know. Well, um, I went there one time after – Shortly after I became a cop, to the bar that that was Vic's bar, mm. and um, 
one of my friends told me, oh, I'm glad you're here. We haven't seen you. It's been a long time. You got your gun on you? <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, why? Maybe. Why? Well, you know, they were having trouble with some game. These were Lucchese guys, more or less. We're having trouble with these Gambino guys down down the block. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck, man? That's my uh, that's my welcome. Nice to see you. Ugh. My gun. So, so just, that was the, obviously that yeah. was like a moment where you're like, oh, we're, we're not going to use the badge for that. Yeah, yeah. Inter- interesting. But like when when you went in, was it? Did you start off as just like a regular beat cop, or where what what yeah. did you get into right away? Yeah, I came on a job. I was a housing cop. What does that mean? Well, years ago, there was three departments in New York City. Today, I went to bed at about 7.30 a.m., and that is because I had a great edit last night. It was a great session. Ideas were flowing, and when you're on a heater, you can't stop it. So I go to bed, and I woke up at about 1 p.m., so by my very bad math, that's only about five and a half hours of sleep. And yet, yet, I've already done about five more hours of editing today, two hours of a workout. I've had a meal, and I'm talking to you, and I got a lot of energy right now. And you know why? Because I sleep on an 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover. The 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover comes in queen or king sizes. It goes right on top of your current mattress. So if you already have a mattress you like, you stick this right on top, and it's wired directly into 8 Sleep's proprietary app that measures your sleep stages and all kinds of sleep science and shit throughout the night to make sure that you get the best sleep possible, and you can wake up having all this energy like me. So if you use that link in my description, along with the code TRENDIFIRE, check that's T-R-E-N-D-I-F-I-E-R. You will get $150 off your own 8 Sleep Pod Pro cover today. You should do it because it's going to change your life and it supports the show. So check it out. The housing police, which basically covered all New York City projects. Mm. The transit cops, which did the subways. Mm-hmm. And the regular NYPD guys that did the streets, so to speak. Right. And I was a housing cop and I was assigned to... When I first came out, I worked in Coney Island uh, projects. Mm. Which, like I always say, for people that don't know what Coney Island is, it's not all Ferris wheels and yeah. Nathan's hot dogs. It's gritty. It's ghetto. And it's tough. Uh, and the projects are low income. And, you know, those are the guys that are committing the crimes and the drugs. That's how, that's how it goes. Yeah. I mean, you know, when people are born into really tough environments, like... It's like you become the cop or the criminal. It's yeah. it's it's like you got the two choices with it. But I mean, when when you were doing that, was that I'm trying to think? That's like the early eighties. So that was eighty three. That was like after the Frank Lucas days, then, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I mean, did you see any shit there that then pressed you on to say like, oh, I want to get into working narc or stuff like that? Um. Well, when I was in the police academy, um. A good friend of mine's father, every once in a while, would drive us because he worked in emergency service, which was actually the, right behind the police academy. Mm. Was, right? He was like a, sw- a SWAT, basically emergency services, NYPD SWAT team. Okay. And every once in a while, he'd take a shortcut to the police academy, <clears throat> and he'd get off on East Housing Street exit and take the streets to 20th Street. That's where the academy was, as opposed to taking the FDR Drive all the way to 23rd Street. And... Uh, and when we got off on Houston Street, I'll never forget, there were lines of people waiting to cop heroin. Lines like you can't. On Houston? <clears throat> on Houston, on the avenue. He, he'd drive it, down Avenue D, down C, uh, down to 14th Street. And you'd see lines. And I and I was, you know, I was a pretty street smart kid. At least I assumed, I, I thought I was. And I asked the, the, the my friend's father, what's going, what are these lines? What's going on here? It was almost like they were on a, 
or cheese line or a bread line or waiting for food or something. He said, we're waiting to cop dope. I'm like, 25 people waiting to cop dope? Who? Just right in public. In public, in an orderly fashion, had their money in their hands. Were ridiculous. Like for people who aren't familiar with New York, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Houston Street. That's like one of the most wide open streets on the entire island of manhattan right like that just that idea obviously we know that these deals happen on streets and stuff but they happen on corners they happen on back streets they happen on side streets stuff like that they don't happen like the way we think about it they don't happen on like a literal main strip of manhattan like that that's nuts it's nuts really and and the truth is nypd not the housing cops but nypd weren't allowed to make drug calls street drug calls since the nap commission what is it wait explain that what so i mean the Knapp Commission was the corruption case of, of New York City cops back in the like the mid seventies, early seventies, mid seventies. And they found that where there were drugs, there are there's money, of course, and uh that leads to corruption for uniform cops. So NYPD basically said uniform cops stay away from dr- street drug arrests. So they just got to completely avoid it. Yeah, so avoid it. So if they're dealing drugs here, let's say, for argument's sake, just walk away, walk across the street. And <laughs> and, when, and like I said, when I drove, we drove by there, I'm like, what kind of bullshit is this? I don't, you know. And, the, and my friend's father, he had told me that. And he also said that the city doesn't mind, it's not the worst thing in the world for the heroin to be contained in one area, meaning Alphabet City, which is Avenue D. And, and, and it's been like that for years prior. He said, it'll keep going on like that. Well, that stuck in my head. And after a couple of months in Coney Island, I put in for a transfer to go to Alphabet City because housing cops could make arrests. They didn't, we didn't have that limitation of not locking up uni- uh, uniform, locking up street drugs. What, why are you allowed to do that, but the NYPD street isn't? It, it, was, it makes it, no sense. It made no sense. Hmm. But NYPD was more afraid of corruption and the guys in the, the cops in the projects, our supervisors, chiefs, and right up and down the line weren't afraid of corruption. So cops, uh, uniform housing cops could make drug arrests. That's wild. I mean, obviously, like, every time you hear one of these things, like, where there was a major thing, obviously, you think, like, Mike Dowd and stuff like that, like the 7-5, where mm-hmm. it's like a full district and there's all kinds of corruption where guys are making money. They can make it wherever they want. Where there's right. crime, they have leverage. It's not just right. drugs. Like, if they catch someone doing something else, they're like, oh, well, you want to pay me off or you want to go to jail? Right. But but where it is, you grab a guy who's dealing drugs, you know he's going to have a pocket full of money on him. True. And that's, what they, that's what they didn't want. They didn't want a uniform guy grabbing a guy and coming up with $3,000 worth of 20s. <laughs> so they did away with it. But, again, we, weren't, we didn't do away. My job didn't do away with that. They encouraged it. Was there any point, like, I'm trying to think about where we were. I feel like I probably know the answer to this question, but I still got to ask. Like, was there any thought from people across the NYPD that, like, oh, this is also a public health crisis that we should figure out working with different commissions to get people help if there's so many people doing heroin? Or was it still, like, at that point, okay, people are doing heroin bad, arrest them, lock them up? There was no help, you know. They, no, there was no. Uh, you got to remember, and and not so much eighty three, but later, a few years down the road, AIDS came along. Mm. And yeah. people, even you know, remember, people dying. You know, Alphabet City were dying left and right. People, 
the thing about heroin in on Avenue D, are you familiar with Avenue D at all? A Houston Street and Avenue D or I'm very C? familiar with Houston. Okay. I'm familiar with C. I haven't right. spent a ton of time okay. on D. Well, D is all the projects, basically. And they run from 14th Street all the way to Delancey Street, really. Yeah. Walled houses, Reese houses, Baruch houses. Um, the AIDS, and so many people from the Avenue died. And what people want to understand is heroin in Alphabet City was, was like a way of life. And, and it was... Um, Everybody made money from it. They were, you know, unless you were totally legitimate, you didn't make money from it. But if you weren't, kids made money being steerers or lookouts. The mm. dealers, the small-time dealers, made money dealing. Um, grandparents held it in their apartment for the dealer. It, it, so it was like the the money just funneled throughout families and. The whole, whole buildings were involved. It's a way of life. It was a way of life. So if you were looking to collar a guy or a dealer, you, somebody out upstairs on the third floor may whistle so this guy knows that there's cops coming because mm. they know they're going to get hood off with a $50 bill for saving this guy from getting collared. Right. You know, it was ridiculous. But as far as the AIDS go, um, so many people, like, they, it wasn't looked down upon to be a, a, a user, really. I locked up so many people that I was shocked were users. Maybe not in necessarily injecting, but everybody used dope. Just snorted it. It was like no big deal. The way it's wild because it's heroin. You can't. You know? I'll tell you a story that I sometimes I, I shake my head. I can't believe it. So when I went down to Avenue D, when I worked down down there, I, I hooked up with a guy that actually grew up in Brooklyn with me, uh, near me. Grew mm. up in Flatland, Flat, Flatlands area. Uh, a year older than me, and we became really good friends. His name was Jeff Sear. We became part. We were partners, and we th thought alike, and we did stuff alike, and we did a lot of stuff uh, off the not a long, not a long, uh, according to police procedure. We did. What, what do you mean by that? So, like, well, first we were in uniform, and we made a million collars, drug collars. Then we got into a unit called Operation Eight, and Operation Eight was a federally funded unit that the government paid for our, our overtime, gave us a vehicle. Um, we had radios from Operation 8. It was a federally funded unit, and the 8 stands for the eight worst projects in Alphabet City, and that's what they wanted us to focus on. So that was, like I said, Walled Houses, Reese Houses, Baruch Houses, Gompers, and a couple other projects. When you say federally funded unit, does that mean that there were national politicians who who were crafting legislation that allowed this to happen, or was it specifically like a department, like Department of Homeland Security or something like that, says, oh, we got a problem in New York, like, okay, let's enable the NYPD? Uh, well, they didn't enable the NYPD. They enabled the housing cops. The, the money was specifically for the housing cops to pay X amount of cops, which so initially was four cops and one sergeant, and the money came from the federal government. mm to try to basically stop the crime in the projects. You know, crime in the projects, aside from the drugs, was always a disaster. Guns and robberies and you name it, it was always a horror. Is this like the war on drugs time, like 85? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Makes sense. Yeah. Um, oh, So you asked me what we did that was non-procedural. Yeah. So in uniform, I would say most of the time we did things, I guess, by the book. While we were in uniform on patrol, because you didn't have the uh, the opportunity or or the leniency to go and change things, but when we got in plain clothes, we realized that 
to get these guys, the drug dealers, you have to do things, you have to work with the community. And when I say the community, I don't mean the good community. Right. Everyone's in on it. Right. So you have to work with the bad guys because if you're going to catch a a criminal, you got to deal with the criminals. So we would either pay the money to tell us who's working out of our own pocket. Or, out of your own pocket. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. But well, you can't use an. See, people don't realize you can't use an informant. If you're going to use an informant, you have to register them, meaning you have to fingerprint them. You have to take their picture. Their paperwork has to go through the police department. They have to. They can't be on parole. They can't be on probation. Really? That's the whole avenue D. There's no. Makes. I never heard that before. Yeah. That's yeah. like way too many dogs and whistles. Imagine if the CIA had to do that. Well, no, we got we got we to exactly. Well, they already probably do know everything, but still. Yeah, and I'm sure they have things where they're supposed to do, but they just overlook it, you know. Um, and that's what we did. But, so we didn't do any. First of all, nobody wants to get fingerprinted. <laughs> and nobody wants anything on paper with their name on it. No. Because if anybody finds out, they're dead. Yeah. So we would pay them out of our pocket, or we'd pay them with somebody else's dope. We'd grab a guy who's dirty and we'd hit off the guy that told us this guy was dirty mm. on the QT obviously you know or we'd leave a couple of bags under the radiator in the building so and tell him where it is and he'd go get it were you ever tempted I mean because you know you're making limited money as a cop were you tempted to to take money for yourself because there's all kinds of money floating around as you all said kind, all kinds of money you know what I worked me and my partner worked in this specific area for a long time and we used to see the same bad guys all the time. And we we both had the same feeling that once you um, lower yourself, their respect for you is gone. Mm. And it, it would have been true. So we were really, and they knew we were, unto, you know, we were unapproachable as far as taking money or, you know. How'd they, they, how, you think they knew that? You don't think that there was, that they're like, oh, one day they might give in. Because a lot of guys did. Yeah, no, they might have thought that. Yeah. You know, but, you know, um, if they did tell, if they did ask us, we'd let them understand in a not so nice way that we ain't taking your money. Right. That we want you, we don't want your money. And um, they wouldn't ask us again. Wow. Yeah, when when I had Luis in here, he was, uh, he may come up later when we start talking about some of this stuff, but he was, he, he was an original cocaine cowboy down in Miami. And he was actually, through his family, his father was connected. And so he was the guy who brought the Cubans to the Italians in New York with oh, all that stuff. Okay. And he he talked to me both on camera and off camera about the whole cop angle. Because like today, he has a lot of friends who are police. He always has. But he's like, some of them were friends because I paid them. And mm. he's like, the moment they take a cent, right. they're done. They're done. They're done. He's like, I will do whatever I want from that point forward because they're now dirty. They, and they, even if it's not much, like they know it. They're compromised. Yeah. It's, you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're screwed. You're screwed once you take a dime. And uh, we never did, you know. And sometimes a dealer would tell them, like when I went into the DEA and we were working a wiretap, I was actually in Brazil at the time. And um, one of the guys stepped off of one of the dealer's money. And he got on the phone and he said uh, that I took his, three, it wasn't a lot of money, but he said that I took his $3,000. But I was in Brazil. Stepped up? What do you mean stepped off? He, like, in other words, he was supposed to go out there and, and make a deal. And he said that I took his money. Oh, the dealer blamed you. Yes. Mm. The dealer blamed me for the, that he had no, uh, that he did the deal, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and he couldn't get the money to the big guy. 
because I my Cadillac took his money. <laughs> but I was in Brazil, so uh, which it saved me, you know, which I was in good shape. But, yeah, you had a good alibi. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So you know they they did you know they do lie and they did work you know they do work around, uh, but but the for the most part they knew we were you know couldn't be bought now how long were you doing this as a housing cop in <clears throat> alphabet city so i went down there in like uh 85 and i we stayed there then we hooked up with dea so like seven eight nine years probably like wow. nine years. and a lot and again a lot <clears throat> of that is in plain clothes yeah when you're doing this yeah and we knew it, it wasn't we, we weren't undercover we were in plain clothes like we were like an anti-crime team so they knew who you were they knew what we were i had more we had my partner and i had more informants that you wouldn't believe it. We'd tell somebody we'll meet them on the roof. Like if somebody wanted yeah. to talk to us, we'd tell them, we'll meet them. 484 East Houston Street was the, is the first building on Houston Street when you get off the FDR Drive. And we used to like that building. So we said, we'll meet you on the, up at 484. We'd have one guy come up. We'd talk to him. He'd go out one door. <laughs> and literally, another 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 informant would come up and come up another door. This is like it, the departed. It was, they're all going up to the roof. It was ridiculous. Man, I'm telling you, it was Everybody's ratting on everybody because they all want to ingratiate themselves with us. But if you're, that's the thing though. It's a big community. Yeah. But it's a small area. So if you're a plain clothes cop, you're not hiding, you're not undercover. No. That's a long time, <clears throat> eight or nine years. Bro, like I, I watch people grow. I've seen p- kids grow up and. Uh, like, how do you last? Like, eventually people are going to be like, oh no, that guy knows everyone. I can't talk to bro, him. Bro, I used to know the name of a, a, a dealer would put a dope brand out. You know, they, they stamped their brand. Yeah, there's Blue Magic. Yes. All that stuff. Right, yeah. right. This guy put out a dope name, a presidential. You know, these names all stick in my head of 30, 40 years later. He put out a dope name. This guy's name was Savage, the black, the the perp, the bad guy. He put out a dope called Presidential. It wasn't even out on the street 20 minutes. Somebody told us, Savage got a new brand of dope. We saw Savage. I said, hey, Mr. President. He said, I don't know. I just put that out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, crazy. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. That's like, because that's got to be like a huge social experiment too for you. Cause you're like, you know, you develop relationships with people, most of whom are totally compromised, but you know, a lot of them, I assume stay informants for a long time. So it's like, you ever seen the wire? No. Oh my God. I you know, haven't seen I know. I that's know. like actually embarrassing. I know. You have to I, see I, that. I, I have a hard time watching some of these shows to be honest. It's, but, but I know it's really good. That, but you live that. Yeah. Like you, I always tell people it's, it's a show, but it's a documentary. There's actors. It's a script. Right. But it's like, whoa, is it real? Right. And guys who, more importantly, guys who were in the life talk about all the time, like police who worked undercover or worked as plainclothes policemen. They're like, this is literally what it is. Right. And like you see that and there's characters like I remember the guy Bubbles who was in there who was, you know, he was he was a heroin addict. But he was friends with the cops for a long time and they put up with you know, the fact that he was this homeless heroin addict right. because he was useful in getting information and they actually, like some of them legitimately were friends with him. Right. It was like this weird, like psychologically for someone like me that never did that, it's such a weird thing to think about because this isn't like five minutes. You right. know, you're in these people's lives, as you said, to watch their kids grow up. Literally, you know, and and play with, some of these kids were cute little kids and yeah. I would throw the ball around with them, football, and then as they grow up, uh, one kid in particular, he he got so um, brought into that drug dealing life, and he eventually got killed when he was young. He was only nineteen, and they killed him. Uh, but he was such a nice kid to us, and you know, happy to see us, and all that stuff. And 
little by little, you could see he just like didn't even want to look at us. And we say, well, you know, what's up, man? Y'all can, you know, what's with the attitude? You, you know what, though? This is so interesting because I'm so obsessed with env- with environments and what they do to people. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, people have to... You come to a point where your actions, you know, they're right. your actions, right. and that that is what it is. But there is such thing as I'm sure you're well aware of people who are in a position where they're much more likely, they have a much or they have a much lower chance of being in a position to choose a lot of good actions. Absolutely, right? I agree. I agree. That's hard to like. I yeah. can't imagine that. I would not want to be a part of to see like someone like, oh, this is a cute kid, and then it's yeah. not his fault he's born here. No. And it took me a long, I don't know, maybe it did take me a long time, but um, I changed a lot. I, you know, in the beginning, I, I only saw black and white, not as far as what I was doing legally and illegally with the dealers, but I mean, as far as guy's a good guy or he's a bad guy. And But that's not true. Like you said, the, the environment, the, your friends, your right. family, you know, some of these kids don't have a shot. Even if they want to be legitimate kids or have, a, you know, you hear stories of, you know, pro athletes or actors that made it out of, you know, they made it out, they made a good life. <clears throat> but for the most part, it's really hard when your mother's a dope addict. Right. Of, whether she's a, I don't know, a junkie or just a functioning dope addict. Either way. Either way. You know, and you see that shit in your house and your father's uh, committing stick-ups. And, or in jail. Or in jail. I mean, it's just like, what one of my buddies... Is from one of the neighborhoods up there, and there's he's told me a lot of stories that stick with me. Teaches me a lot, but you know he made it out, and he he's he's unbelievable. But there was a point where he got put on a track where he got to go to a high ranking school in the neighborhood, meaning for like the people who are very smart. Right. And so obviously that's like a golden ticket. Right. And his parents, who are both amazing, they're both around like great people they were like 100 percent. like you got to do this and he tells a story he's like outside of some of the shit that would happen where we'd fight with people after school because they'd stop us and be like oh you're the kids from that school boop, boop, boop. Mm. he said there was one day when he got a little older where some of his friends who would never be involved in that stuff you know they they still fucked with him and were still good friends with him but like you know they'd be spending less time and he got to this day i don't know if he was like 13 or 14 or 15 probably 15 16 something like that I think he came home after a while away and one of his friends was standing on the corner, strapped, mm. working for the the guy in the neighborhood as he was approaching him. And he looked at him and, and, and there was a moment where he was like, oh. And he literally grabbed my friend and said, walked him across the street and said, stay on this side. I got you. Wow. And then walked back. And it was just, un- you know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, it was sure. understood. Like, right. This is how I got to go to put food on the table. Right. Don't you dare come over here. That's wow, such that's a huge. it's heavy to me. Yeah, man. That's it's huge. a heavy thing. Yeah, for you know, misery loves company. Yeah, so, not in that case apparently, yeah, but he wow. Was, he was lucky. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's a human moment though. You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. And, like, and there's more people that would have rather him been on the wrong side of the street with him than watch him do good. Right. Right, and you know about that too from yeah. growing up like, yeah, yeah. With, with your friends, as you pointed yeah. out at the beginning. Absolutely, it's it's some sort of it's necessity, and then it's also you know you see you look around who's got the nice car, right? Who's got who's got the stack of cash? Who owns the pizzeria? Right. And all the girls like the money. You know, nobody's going out with broke guys, right? So yeah, it's tough. 
Yeah. So you were you were a bunch of years in there, but one of the things you and I were talking about before we got on camera that you mentioned quickly was the whole DEA thing. Right. I've always been curious about this because as you told me, you didn't go into the DEA, but you were as a part of the NYPD, I guess the narcotics division, you were yeah. you were assigned to work with them for a long time. Uh, well, what what happened was um so me and my partner were on the Alphabet City for years. And like you said, we knew everybody. Which which we did. We knew everyone, um, and we had done stuff with different agents in the New York office. Either one particular guy, uh, an agent, uh, a, a shop agent, he came to us on a couple of occasions with pictures, and he said, "Hey, I'm looking for." There was a kid Hector he was looking for. Man, we did this. They actually did a warrant on his house, but they missed him in the in the projects. They did a warrant in the How'd project. How they miss him? He wasn't home. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah, they missed him. Have you ever have you seen Hector? We're like, yeah, we'll, we'll see him once in a while. We're looking for him. If you so, sure, we got we got him. No time. Another guy who was actually Hector's partner, guy Caesar. If you see, we got picked up Caesar. So this guy, the word got in the DEA office. If you need anybody in the Alphabet City, you know let. So one of the groups up there, Group Thirty Four, um, did a case uh, with some Puerto Ricans from Alphabet City and a Chinese and a uh, Chinese dealer. And somewhere along the line, I think the U.S. attorney uh, refused to prosecute some of the Puerto Rican guys who were buying from the Chinese. But they were still criminals, obviously. They, right. they, they just, for whatever reason, the U.S. attorney didn't think it was enough. Or, so they came, they heard of us through this other agent, and they came with a bunch of pictures, like 10, 15 pictures. They said, you know these guys? And we're like, yeah, that's uh, Lucho, that's uh, Tio, that we named them all. <laughs> we knew them all. Yeah, what are they, uh, Mike? Well, we don't see them here often, but we know who they are. They were called up our chief. You know, obviously, we, they asked us first, and they said, "Can we borrow me and my partner, and we're going to work this case on the Lower East Side, uh, in Alphabet City, and um, we'd like to use them." So what we they did was they took us up. They gave us a, they swore us in as a federal, uh, it's like a federal marshal. Basically, you can carry mm. a gun all over. You got federal powers, arrest powers. And uh, they swore us in. And they had a civilian undercover who was working off a bid, working off, uh, I think his brother had been arrested. So to work off his brother's bid, this civilian guy was going to do some undercover work for them. Mm. So as an informant. Obviously. As an informant. Right. Yeah. Right. A confidential informant. So they asked us, who should we send this guy to buy from that'll lead us to our guys? And that's what we did. We, you know, we had him in an undercover truck for van for a while, and then we we found out who's what dope these guys were behind, basically, and we put him in there, and then he bought, and then he just bought his way up, and then we ended up going on a wiretap for quite a few months, and we end up taking down forty. Uh, Alphabet City uh, heroin dealers. Wow. Now, were they, these guys, I'm trying to think like of the organizational chart here. These guys weren't the guys who were at the top providing it, but they were the guys who were like kind of managing on the ground then in this case. Yeah, but we got to the top guys. Oh, you did? Yeah. Like Rico type stuff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. We did, we, we locked How? up 40 guys and uh, it was a, it was a, a Rico case, yeah. Wow. So with the wiretaps, like, how long did this go on? Uh, quite a few months. I think we were up in a wire, like, f between four and six months. And and separate wires, too, like, different phones. You know, if I call your phone 
and um, we talk dirty stuff, t- dirty business, then your phone could get a wire. Then we could put a wiretap on your phone. So how many phones did you wiretap by I the think, end? I think we did like maybe, f- I'm going to say like five maybe. Wow. Yeah. It's like it's top guys. Several. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The top guys. So all basically at the end of the day, all the pertinent information at some point or another is coming through those. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the, and the, we had them so good that the number two guy was a, a the top guy was a, a Puerto Rican guy who was kind of like soft spoken and uh, kind of, if, for lack of a better term, kind of a wimpy kind of looking guy. And mm. we thought for sure he was going to flip. For sure, we thought he would flip. The top guy. The top guy. And the second guy under him was a street, tough black kid that had done jail time, and we never figured him to flip. Well, he flipped, and the top guy didn't flip. Once wow. Once the number two guy flipped, everybody took a plea and copped out, and everybody just, we didn't even go, not even one trial on the whole case. Wow. And Lynn Stewart, I don't know if you're familiar with Lynn Stewart. Larry Davis, remember Larry Larry David, Larry Davis, the, the guy that shot the cops in the Bronx, shot like seven no. cops. No, not what's what was the first name? Lynn Stewart. Larry, yeah, Lynn Stewart. She's a counselor uh, protege. Oh, is this the woman that went to jail for yes. representing the the the, uh, the blind sheep? Yeah, yeah. So did she represent them? She represent yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. She did. She represented a lot of them. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, she wow. hated. I'll tell you this really funny story. So she, we used to lock up guys, and they used to say her husband came from there, from Alphabet City. I don't mm. know how true that is. They say he came from Gompers Projects. I don't know if that's true. That was never confirmed. But a lot of guys used her as a as a lawyer, and uh, so it made sense that maybe the husband didn't introduce her. But who knows? But in any event. Guys would tell us, uh, you know, Lynn Stewart will get me out and, and you know, all that shit. Uh, so we used to, and they would come back and say, man, Lynn Stewart hates you guys, meaning me and my partner. Hey, she fucking, she hates you. So we would tell them all kinds of shit to tell Lynn Stewart. <laughs> like, tell her we think she's this, she's that. Like, we really, we really must have drove her insane. You tell her she was hot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything, everything but she's being hot. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we lock up these 40 guys, and they're all in, like, the bullpen of the federal court, like, all sitting in the bleachers. And she's representing a bunch of them. And um, this is now the first time we've ever seen it. Well, during the case, to be, it might have been after the case, one of the guys who was cooperating gave us information on her, that she was holding guns for bad guys. And um, she actually rented a car that a homicide was using for <laughs> one of the guys. And the U.S. attorney said, you know, it's hard to lock up because of lawyer privilege client yeah. it's hard so they didn't go it's a after slippery her. slope yeah it's a real slippery slope and they didn't go after her. but in any event um what did she side note though what did she do with the sheik again she hid like a potential terrorist plot or something she was helping so they used to she was his lawyer and they brought in a um translator yeah and supposedly she was um, letting them talk, because and and I, and I believe there was somebody uh, like the guards were there, or somebody was there that could interpret on the government's behalf. Mm. She was deflecting him, so the two, the the bad guy interpreter and this blind sheik could talk, and he was passing messages to this guy to go out and give these messages to the terrorists. Wow! And she got arrested and convicted. 
Yeah, yeah, because yeah. It, it was reasonable. Yeah, to assume that she yeah. knew something was going on. Yeah, she was dirty for sure. She was yeah, dirty. I, you know. Yeah. That is not a job I would ever or could ever do, be a defense right. attorney. I, I really couldn't. That's tough. Like, because two things. When I was defending someone who was innocent, I'd never sleep. God forbid, if they got found guilty, I'd never sleep. And then also when I'm defending someone who's guilty, I have a legal obligation to be objective and defend them. If they get off. I mean, okay, if they like stole a piece of bread, I don't really right. care. But like, right. you know, if someone raped somebody or murdered some, like... I don't know how you sleep at night with that. It's tough. I have a friend, a uh, guy who trains with me, actually. He's a lawyer. And I ask him, you know, on a, on a couple of occasions, uh, you know, you know this guy, he's guilty? And he's like, I know he's guilty. <laughs> I says, well, he said, well, I don't ask him. He says, I don't ask him what happened. I just try to get him off, uh, get him the best deal I could get him. If I'll tell him we shouldn't go to trial, you know, but I don't ask him exactly what happened because I don't really want to know He's not going to tell me anyway. He's not going to lie. He's not going to tell the lawyer the truth probably anyway. He's going to make up some bullshit. So he tells him, I don't even, I'll tell him this is the best way to get out of this. Take this plea or let's work this angle. He said, but, I, you know. It, it is so important, like when you look at how they crafted this with the Constitution to be able to give people rights in the face of a government being able to do whatever they want. I think it's critical and it's it's a very important thing we have. It just takes... Like in that example, that's somebody who's talking about they on purposely compartmentalize some things and leave it out, which, hey, I guess if that's how you got to deal with it, who am I to tell you not right. to do that, number one. Right. But it also takes like a level of objectivity that if you are an emotionally wired person like me, and I got to assume there's a lot of lawyers who actually are emotionally wired. I don't know how they get there to just be like this, then this, this, then this. This is the way the law says, so this is how we execute it. But that's, you know, when I talk to friends who go to law school, they're just like, that's what they beat into you. They beat into you, stop thinking about feelings on this stuff. Think about the application of what the words on this page say right. according to the law. Right. And so maybe there is like... Not maybe. I guess there has to be something that in those three, four years that you're in law school, your brain just yep. flips a switch and suddenly it's like, this is what it is. Right. But then you're in the situation. Then you're in it, yeah. And he gets a, a lot of cases appointed to him from the state. Mm. So, you know, he says, I do what I do. You know, I do what I have to do to them, I, for them, you know, and I'll tell them, you can't win this case. Like he had one recently, he was telling me. He knew the guy. They had him cold. I don't remember the specifics of the case, but they had the guy cold. The police, had, you know, uh, and he wanted to fight the case. The guy was like, "No, I'm fighting it. I don't care." Because he couldn't. He had done a lot of time, and he didn't couldn't cop up. The plea wasn't that great, and he was like, "I don't care. I'm just taking." And of course, the guy told him, "All right." And he, and of course, the guy lost. You know, he got slammed. Also heavy to deal with. It's like I think about these lawyers who are who are standing in court like when someone's like, you've been sentenced to life in prison. They're like putting their arm on them and then they get taken away and the lawyer goes out and like yeah. buys Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. <laughs> like, fuck, man. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Like, it's funny. It's heavy as hell, man. Yeah. It's it's something. But I, I, I cut you off. Where where were we? with You were talking about the DEA case with the 40 Puerto Ricans and Lynn Stewart. Oh, so Lynn Stewart has the guys up in the, you know, yeah. she's got a bunch of these case, the guys she's representing. So at some point she has to get up and approach the judge. And um, me and my partner are sitting at the, the prosecution's table, the U.S. attorney's table, just kind of like in chairs, swivel chairs. Now she knows of us. I don't know if she's ever seen us, but she knows of us. She knows who we are. 
So when she's finished with the judge, instead of just walking to her defense, the defense table, she like goes out of her way to walk towards us. And she nudges my partner. <laughs> and he spins around. She hit him such a shot. She, he like spun around. Well, like she's shit. a fucking peeling she's guard. A, she's a, <laughs> you see the size of her? <laughs> but it, it was kind of, it's kind of nice to know that, you know, we really messed, screw her day up, you know? Yeah, that's that's something. Like, yeah. how do these people, like the Ben Braffmans of the world and stuff, like, know, how do they end up where they just, they're everywhere. Yeah. Like, she had the blind sheik. She had all these people in Alphabet City, apparently. There yeah. were other kids. Larry other David, I'm telling you, she had some bad people, man. Who, what was the Larry Davis thing again? He, uh, the cops, he was a drug dealer, and they went up to execute a warrant, and um, an arrest warrant, and he went out in a blaze of glory shooting at them. Oh, and he wow. shot like seven or eight of them, and he got away. And he was on the lam for quite some time, and they finally catch him. And then I think he got off on that case. He, he was arrested on a separate homicide, but on that case, they the Bronx jury actually, he beat that case. And uh, Kunstler was saying that the cops were dirty, and they were trying to execute him because he had information on dirty cops. And they, they actually beat the she, she and Kunstler actually beat He won wow. the case. Yeah, what, but he was that? inside. Uh, that was probably like 88. Yeah. See, this was also like, I, I don't know. I was, I wasn't born, so I don't know this New York, but the New York you're talking about, like from speaking, I, you haven't really brought it up today yet, but speaking to other people who were there and stuff like the 1970s and 1980s in New York were fucking wild. Yeah. I mean, I guess like that line you talked about on Houston street, that seems right. like right up what it was but people were saying they're like dude you could be at you'd be at times square and like you're getting robbed yeah. by like some pros in broad daylight Time. that's crazy to think about now times square was nuts crazy and that's all because of that nap commission or whatever well the drugs were you know the drugs got you know cops couldn't do anything for the drugs but in general 42nd street 8th avenue that was a porn capital of the world and every other thing that was going on there what do you think of like a little sidebar on this, but what do you think of the whole conversation with policing today? Because, and that's a really broad way of putting it, but you know, it seems like the people who talk about it are either team A or team B, like everything else. It's either like all about it or like fuck all of them, defund them and everything. I look at it and even though I don't like a lot of the things I've seen, I'm like, Whenever you do like defunding or like getting rid of, it's never good because right. then people have free reign to do whatever the fuck they want and you don't have any of the good cops out there anymore, right? But then on the other end, I'm also like, well, how do we incentivize this more so that the people who want to do the job, guys like you who come on and like get the job done and are like, okay, well, here's what we do. Here's the bad people. Here's the good people. That's head down. This is what we're doing. We're not taking money for ourselves, things like that. How do we get it so that – you put people like that in a position where they're a making enough money doing the job, you know, to support a family and things like that and not looking around at everyone else making money and B get them the proper training. Cause like you're, you're a jujitsu master, right? Like you're, you're legit. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of guys, there's a lot of cops, no disrespect. Like I'm spinning them around real fast. Right. Just, and I'm, I only box. I don't do any of the fucking right. on the floor shit. Right. Right. Like that, that shouldn't be the case. Right. Um, so I don't, what exactly is the question you're asking me? As far as like the state, that was a lot there. Sorry. As far as like the, the state of people 
debating police these days, like as someone who's now been out of the force for a while, but who was in it for a long time, like how would you, what, what things would you want to fix right now? And how would you go about doing it? And also what do you think people are claiming that's like totally unreasonable? Um, so I think Giuliani, Giuliani had the answer. Jack Maple, who was a commissioner, police, uh, deputy police commissioner, and Bill Bratton. <clears throat> and their answer was the broken, I, I, they call it something like the broken windows theory or way of policing. And that was, you can't let people commit graffiti. You can't let people um, jump the turnstile. Because those are the same guys that are robbing people. Those are the same guys that are uh, doing stick-ups, burglaries, dealing dope, dope using dope. Everything's got to be, whatever the violation is, um, they got to be accountable for it. So if a guy jumps a turnstile, grab him. You're either going to summons him. If you don't want to get summons, then you lock him up. If he gives you a problem, lock him up. Do a warrant check on him. See if he's got a warrant. Um, right up the line. Guy, whatever, the panhandling. You can't No panhandling. If he does, lock, give him a summons. If he's got no ID, if he's homeless, or uh, lock, arrest him. And that'll... That, takes the crime down. Giuliani proved it. I mean, the numbers from a couple of thousand homicides a year to virtually half of half of the numbers Giuliani took out. At the homicide level, that's true. I, I don't have them in front of me, but as far as like taking it down, that's absolutely true. And that's the most serious, like taking somebody's life. If we can have less of that, that's great. That I think the argument with some of that though is like we create these perpetual systems so you put yourself in a position where you're going into bad environments to be incentivized to look for the small things like that and you grab a 15 year old kid for jumping a turnstile and you give him a record and now his criminal career begins to be honest a 15 year old kid would only get a a juvenile delinquent nonsense that gets uh, expunged when he's 17 or 18 18 years old probably so if you're an adult and you jump a turnstile you should get arrested, or at mm. least a summons, right? I mean, if the prices are too high to take a to, to take for an individual to take the subway, then they have to do something with that, you know. But but you can't let people commit crimes. That's you know. I mean, that's the way I look at it. That's that's the bottom line. You can't justify um, writing on a wall because you're poor, or because you're angry, or spray painting. Uh, a statue, uh, whatever, you know, it's, it's a violation or it's a crime. They have to answer for it. And those are the same guys that are doing all the crimes. That, you know, you're not going to get a kid that's, or a guy or panhandling who's not going to pick your pocket if you're not looking. It's the same guy. And, you know, and and, they're, and, and those are the people that are going, you know, the, the less crime you take off the street, the less, well, listen, listen like what I, you know, it, when me and my partner were working in plain clothes, there was a guy, um, I've talked about this not too long ago. He was a known, for lack of a better term, he was a known assassin for drug deals all over the city. Mm. They would pay this kid, I mean, and he 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 used to look like a little schoolboy. That's what he's, That's the name I gave him in my book, but that's not his real nickname. But he looked like a schoolboy. He had little glasses on. He was small framed. Um, he used to carry a little knapsack, like a little school bag. And he looked like a schoolboy, and he'd walk up to people and kill them, big-time drug dealers. Mm. And he was known throughout the city, detectives from other other uh, other boroughs and other parts of Manhattan would ask me and my partner about him. 
you know, we hear that he did this, you know, he did that. And I'm like, we know, we, we hear from the people in the avenue what he's about. He would never carry a gun when we were working. We must have grabbed him 50 times and tossed him. Never had a gun. Somebody tells us he don't carry a gun because he knows you guys are working from either a day tour, meaning 8 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon, or 4 in the afternoon to midnight is when we worked. Unless we had an arrest, but then we'd be in court. We wouldn't be on the streets running around. We'd be in court. So everybody tell him, he don't carry a gun when you guys are around. He knows you guys are going to grab him. <clears throat> One night, my partner and I are working, and we see a, a wanted guy for a homicide. This guy had been wanted for years. And me and my partner always looked for him. Not actively looked, but we'd say, you know, that looks like so-and-so. And, mm. go, go, and it wasn't him. So he was always on our head because we, we didn't like this guy. Anyway, one night we're walking and we see him. We grab him, the homicide perp. Bring him to the detectives. It's about 11 at night, 11.30. They said, well, do us a favor. Would you go to this apartment and go get the witnesses from this old homicide? So now it's after 12. We're usually either in court or home. We're driving down Avenue D going to get these witnesses. And I see this guy hanging out with a bunch of other, you know, perps. Schoolboy assassin. Yes. We see him with another, a bunch of the regulars. He's with the regulars, who are, were always his friend. When I see him, his face, and he sees me, his face turned every color you can imagine. I told my partner, I said, he's dirty. Let's get him. I make a U-turn. He takes off. Takes off like a deer. And we chase him. He throws his bag. My partner goes after the bag. I go after him. And we catch him. I catch him. <clears throat> He, don't have, he doesn't have anything on him, but we're assuming it's in the bag, which wouldn't be hard to find. He just literally flipped it. Don't you know we can't find, my partner can't find the bag. Somebody took the bag. We actually call for backup to help us look for the bag. Another, you know, we tell him, another car comes, two cars come. They can't find this bag anywhere. And it wasn't like somebody could take it because we really didn't take our eyes off of it. And he didn't throw it a mile away. He just threw it a few feet. Anyway... I got this kid in the in my car. Um, How old is he? He's my so I was probably like twenty four. He was probably like twenty three, twenty four. Mm. Uh, I pat him down. I come up with some dope. I'm like, and going back to everybody using. I'm like, bro, what are you doing with this? He says, I ah, just once in a while. I say, you use. I was shocked to be honest, because he was a clean cut looking kid. I'm like, you use dope? He's like, yeah, once in a while. Anyway, I give it back to him because I don't, well, I didn't give it back to him at this point, but I put him back in the car. We can't find the, we can't find the gun. I said, all right, we got to go get these witnesses. The gun is gone. I said, all right, get up. He skipped out. I give him the dope back because I wasn't going to lock him up for the dope. I didn't really care that he was a dope addict or a dope user. I didn't like him, but I wanted to get him for what I wanted to get him for, either a homicide or for a gun. Mm-hmm. So, and I couldn't be bothered with locking this guy up and spending a couple of hours in court with this guy when I was supposed to get these witnesses for the homicide perp. So I give him his dope back. Just as he's about, he's got one foot on the cement, he's leaving. My partner gets on the radio and says, hold him, we got the gun. When they threw the gun, it went up a tire wheel well. And that's why they couldn't find it. It went up the tire and was stuck on the top of a tire. And How'd they find it? Dogs? No, no, no. They just eventually found it. Just by looking, they just eventually found it. 
and uh, got a beautiful gun. I said, oh, sorry, bro. <laughs> Going to jail. So he goes, so we lock him up, and he, a couple of months later, he's going to take it to trial. What, now, what do you got him on? The possession of the gun. Just the possession of the gun. Yeah, just the possession of the gun. Huh. And uh, he had a record anyway, so he would, you know, he was going to do some time for the gun. I don't remember if we charged him with the dope or not. I probably did uh, the dope and the gun because I'm locking him up anyway. I probably charged him with the drugs anyway. Yeah. So they take we take it to trial. He has somebody come in and say that he wasn't even that he was with him playing video games all night. That he wasn't even. That, that that whole thing never happened, basically. That you guys didn't chase him through the streets? Yeah, that, he has a witness come up on the stand and say that he was with me. That witness had been arrested for perjury once. And the judge <laughs> wouldn't let them bring that out in court. Uh, come the, on. The, once, the people don't understand that once you're in the judge's courtroom, they make the rules. Yeah. And they don't... He, the judge wouldn't... The DA couldn't believe they wouldn't let them, let them bring that up, that this guy was arrested for perjury once. Anyway, it becomes a, it's a hung jury. So now we got to do this again, eventually. So a couple of months down the road, two of the people on our wiretap, well, they weren't on the wiretap. We were already up on the wire, so me and my partner weren't working there every day. We were with the DEA at this point, but we got to go back to this trial. Two of the people that were targets get killed uh, on the FDR drive, sitting in their car. He comes up to us. You heard about the, the next day was his trial, the second trial. He says, you heard about uh, Makatuma and so-and-so got killed? I said, we said, yeah. He said, thank God I'm going to court today because I would have been in the car with them. I was with them earlier, but I had to leave because I had to get ready for court t- today. I had to go to bed. Really? So basically, we saved his life, which... Was, you you get a thank you for that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't crazy about the idea, but yeah, we saved his life. But anyway, it was uh, another trial, and he was convicted mm. of the gun. People in the jury came up you know, you could question the jury of what they thought. They were crying after the case. They had sympathy for this guy because they couldn't believe that he was a killer and he had a gun and all this other stuff. But he, you guys couldn't talk about him being a killer. You just, because that's no, not admissible, right? It was inadmissible, but I think part of his record came up, other possessions of weapons and other stuff. And they still had sympathy for this guy thinking, you know, he was such a good kid. It, well, that's the thing. Like, <sighs> nothing is ever going to be perfect. I recognize that. But you also have like the human element. If someone, you have 12 people who are sitting there who don't know you and all they can do is look at you and get a read. And obviously they're listening to evidence too. That definitely plays a huge role, but there's like the human element of it. Like even what's her name in the public, in the court of public opinion, like Amanda Knox, if you remember that case, she was innocent as all hell. But she just kind of had a disposition that screamed, like, just certain things yep. that are like, oh, she seems guilty, right? And then it all came out that she wasn't, and people were like, oh, sorry. But that's what we do. You know, we're sitting there, you see, they see a schoolboy-looking person in court. They're like, this guy, right. he never killed anybody. Right. But you, you're out there every day, you're like, I've watched, I've seen this guy blow people away left and right. Yeah. It's got to be frustrating, but but at the same time, like, it is an important part of the process. I just don't know, you know, like there's people who are paid millions of dollars to judge a jury. Right. You know, like that's, there's always going to be loopholes. Well, the story goes back to what you asked about the policing. Now, if yeah. we were guys that didn't stop people, 
right? I mean, yeah. If I didn't, if we, you know, if we would have let this guy go that night, he would never. Obviously, he would never got arrested for the gun. Not that that was the heaviest crime in the world, but he did do some time. Um, did he go back to the life? He, he yeah. So he he went he went to jail for a short time. I don't know, maybe a couple of years. <clears throat> and then later on, I get a call years later. I'm working somewhere completely different, and a detective friend of mine calls me. He says, "Uh, hey, we got so and so here." he's sitting in the jail, in the cell. He wants to talk to you. I said, he wants to talk to me? What do you want to talk to me for? He says, he'll give it up if he talks to you. I said, well, I'm actually off now, but I'll come in. I just call my my boss. I'll tell him what's going on. I'll come in. I'll talk to him. It was another shooting in the lobby that he did, and supposedly he was going to confess to me. By the time I got there, his sister had already got him a lawyer, and... That was all changed. He didn't want to talk anymore. Mm. So, um, so he went back to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But you were saying, like, as far as like with with the police and why why did you bring up that story again? Well, because by if you leave a guy like this alone, like, so we used to grab him all the time. So let's say, for argument's sake, you you could call a stop question and frisk. Whether we just stop them, whether we just ask him where he's going, or if we frisk them. Right, um, when you do away with stuff like that, this guy would have walked around with that gun like he was walking in the park every day. But because of us, because he was afraid of us, he he did not do that, and he did take it out after twelve o'clock at night. He was carrying his gun, and then he saw us. Unfortunately for him, and you know, obviously we grabbed him. This is another thing. Like I don't, I really don't have a great answer for this, but it reminds me of like the whole privacy argument. Like I had Andrew Bustamante in here who he was a CIA spy Mm -hmm. and he's got interesting takes on that that a lot of people these days don't agree with. But he was talking about like when it comes to what the government can look at, he's like, if it can stop a terrorist attack, look at whatever you want. Right. And the morality behind perhaps his motivations for saying that is probably good. Jim DiOrio, who you and I were talking about, that's another right. one. He was on the San Bernardino iPhone case. So that was in 2015 where Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, did not give the password to the iPhone to right. the FBI. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, but he didn't. And the reason was, he goes, because if I give this to you now, what's the next one I give to you? It's a slippery slope thing, right? right? And so I think it's the same argument with some of this because like – I think it was the Bloomberg stop and frisk rule and everything. Like the effects that that had on communities where they just stop. You give people the power to do whatever they want. They, they're stopping kids left and right. It, it, It's also – it's creating an environment where unlike you where you had to work and make friends with everyone, create an environment of us and them right. for a lot of people. So what I worry about – like I understand where you're coming from with the Giuliani thing, but like I worry about – People who are not in it for the right reasons taking advantage of stuff like that because they can. Oh, you look like you jumped over a turnstile there. I'll tell them who's going to believe you. You know, that kind of thing. You know, I've been on both sides, believe it or not. Like, I've been stopped when I was, um, even even not, not that long ago, you know, after being retired. But when I was uh, an undercover or off-duty or, bro, I've been stopped by cops and I've been treated pretty shitty, too. Even yeah. before I identify myself, and even after I've, I've identified myself, <laughs> guys just have. Listen, I'm the first. I don't have it. Honest to God, bro, I don't have any cop friends that come to my house. I never did. You know, it's just the way I am. Uh, 
So I get I get all that, but if you stop me and so you're not nice to me, as long as you don't flake me, maybe you stop or, or, or you stop somebody, a friend of mine, whatever. Uh, as long as you don't flake them and you think the next guy you stop might be a, a bad guy, you may be doing something right. So it is a, it is a, a, a slippery slope, but Bloomberg's administration got crazy because they made it a stat. Uh, yeah. They put it on paper. Yeah. And, the, true. and that was part of like, show the cops activity. Yes. So write 10 summonses, for argument's sake, lock up two guys a month. Quotas. Yeah. Stop and question 20 people. Yeah. Which is bullshit. I mean, you stop and, if you don't see anybody that needs to be, and, and again, the word stop question and frisk is bullshit too because if I just talk to you, like, and we'll go back to Avenue D. There was the uh, FDR Park, and it's a it's a really nice uh, a nice well it's really nice now. But yeah. back then it was a track a track and field, uh, and guys used to do all kinds of sports on it. So it was almost like reverse discrimination. If we saw a white guy in Avenue D, he was there to cop dope. Mm. You had no there were no white people on Avenue D. But there were a lot of different races down there. Well, it's right? mostly Hispanics and bl- and some black. Even now, it is more black. Um, it was mostly uh, Puerto Ricans. So and you were targeting Puerto Ricans more than anything. Well, they were the ones doing the dealing. Right. But if you can if I saw you, you actually you come down to Avenue D, walking on Avenue D, whether I was in plain clothes with my partner or in uniform, I'd say, "Where are you going? Uh, I'm waiting for somebody. Who are you waiting for?" They live in this Taking building. a walk. <laughs> yeah. They live in this building. Well, what's the address? You don't know the address? What apartment? Yeah. So I was actually targeting you because I knew you were you were looking to cop dope, right? Yeah. Um so, so there was a so my point was there was a the park, people used to walk down Sixth Street to get into the FDR park. If I saw a guy that looked like an athlete or you know, running or I'm not gonna grab him. I know he's going to the park on a nice track, he was mm. going to run. If I see a guy that looks shitty walking towards the park, who say Delta out of the park too, then I'd say this guy's going to cop. When he comes back, he's dirty. When he comes back, he's either either, either he's going to get high in the park, or he's buying a couple of bags. He's he's going to be dirty. And then I ask you, where'd you go? Uh, all right, let me see what do you got. And then you're dirty. Mm. So you know you gotta you gotta have kind of common sense. And that's a part of the job. And the and I think. I think it's fair to say all 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 the good cops clearly do, you know, because right. they don't find themselves in those situations where it's very minimal. But it's it's a tough. It, it's just one of those things. It's a tough answer too, because like you talk about like racial profiling and stuff, which is an issue in in certain environments for sure. But there's there's another layer beneath that that you should probably ask about, which is like the whole percentages profiling. Right. So like you just did it right there. Technically, I'm a white guy. I'm walking down Avenue D. You're profiling a white dude right there because wait, that is not usually percentage wise. Not a lot of white people around here. Right. Right. So I get that. It's that makes sense. I think when people take advantage of it and use it on swaths of entire communities, that's probably where people run into problems. But I don't know. It's 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 certainly a tough thing. And, And I think anyone who's worked like you have deep within the community where drugs are, as we said, the way of life, there's probably things that you like human understandings of, 
who does what and why they do the things they do that you have that you may even take for granted just because you're in there every day mm -hmm. that like the average police officers working the beat they don't have any of that right you know what i mean like they don't have that that's why i like when i see cops actually going out and developing a relationship with the community right. and they mean it right mm -hmm. like they're they're putting themselves in a position to have to do some of the things that you did right. as a plain clothes guy right uh, you know like uh, my partner and i um you know we we couldn't comprehend how the city would let this alphabet city go so bad. You know, there's a lot of good people in the projects. Kids, you see kids, I, I actually wrote about it in my book. Instead of kicking the can on the way to school, they'd be kicking hypodermic needles back and forth to each other. It's crazy. Crazy, man. Like stuff we don't even, can't even contemplate. You know, you turn around for a second and your little baby's picking up a, a empty bag of heroin. Or half, you know, they, they're never empty unless... You know, there's always residue on it. So they're playing with residue bags of heroin, and then they have it on their fingers. Then they touch their face. Or It's crazy. What's crazier is that four blocks away, there's three townhomes that just sold for $6 million right. a piece. Exactly. That's what's wild to yep. me. Like, you see, like, if you go down Park Avenue, just straight, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Rich, 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 That's rich, rich, right. not rich. That's right. It's like... Crazy. It's it's a really scary thing, but that's how like society's weird like that. I I know towns like that around here where it's like one, we were driving through one the other day. I had somebody in town and and we were, and I was like, oh yeah, like this right there, and then boom, like all of a sudden it's like, whoa, where'd we go? Right. You know that's it's tough, man. It kind of doesn't make sense to me, but yeah. anyway. So you did that for like nine years, but the yeah. DEA stuff was that just the one case with all the puerto ricans or did did you work on further things no, what, after that what happened was after that case um we wrapped it up we did the clerical and everything that had to go along with it um the interviews the grand juries all that bullshit but then eventually um my chief they kept me and my partner up there uh, in the in the dea drug enforcement and my chief asked me he actually asked me twice, kind of for the same the same favor twice. One, the first one I believe was Coney Allen. When my, my chief was a regular captain, mm. he had the command in Coney Island, and there were these guys in Coney Island that used to just mess with him, like salute him and give him the finger. And every time he drove by, um, and they were bad guys. They were uh, um, one guy had shot at an undercover, um, and they were known like I had known them when I was. I had known the name when I was there as a rookie in uniform. And they were like uh, a whole family. And he said, Mike, if you could do anything, try to do me a favor. Would you go get those? Uh... And he, you know, he told me the names. And I recognized the names. So I went and I got some, their BCI photo, their picture, you know, their mug shots. And I just started hanging around Coney Island. I didn't even tell the agents because I couldn't have agents surveilling me. So you're undercover. Doing yeah, this. right. So now I'm yeah. I got a DEA undercover car, and I would wear like regular clothes, t-shirts, tank tops, so they know I wouldn't have. I didn't carry a gun, so they knew I wasn't a cop, or they would assume I wasn't a cop. And I would just keep letting people, letting these bad guys see me on Mermaid Avenue, on Stillwell Avenue, wherever, in the Surf Avenue, rather. And then um, one day, one of the guys was getting gas, one of the main targets. And I get I pulled up next to him to get gas, and he had a, a a Mercedes at the time, a nice Mercedes, and there were no leased cars back then. So, if you had a car, nice car, that means you bought it. And um, he had a nice car, and I get out and start talking to him, and he saw, you know, he, 
you know, I kind of introduced myself. And then eventually, I'm sure he remembered me, and I meet a female from the project. Mm. And I tell her this, I'm looking to cop heavyweight. And she says, oh, well, I know a guy. And that's the guy she introduces me to. Mm. Um, and I end up buying away from him and his brother and basically the, his whole, the whole, whole Coney Island crew. We took down, we eventually took down 17 uh, pretty big guys from Coney Island. When you bought it, was it one of those where they all descended immediately upon the handoff? Or No, no, no. It was a long-term case. Got it. Yeah, it was like an eight-month case. Yeah, we did a wiretap on one of them guys too. Mm. And we, yeah, we did a good case actually. But your chief in the NYPD asked for this, but you were acting as a DEA agent. Right, right. How does that work? Um. Well, we got, he assigned us there. You know, yeah. he was the chief that got us up. Yeah. said, go ahead, go. Uh, and then the DEA didn't care. You know, in other words, they were happy to have a case going. It was a good case. <laughs> One of their agents got officially assigned to the case on their end. After I made the introduction, when I was ready to buy, I took the agents with me, of course. They did surveillance and, you know, but that took quite a few weeks until I got, or months until I got friendly with these guys that I let surveillance come into the case. Because, mm. again, I couldn't be seen with some, bad enough, I'm a white guy from Brooklyn that they didn't trust. And now they're going to see maybe seven or eight unmarked cars or plain clothes on the yeah. cover cars or white guys in cars. It would have never worked. Yeah. So. Did you, I mean, here's the other thing, though. Like, it sounds like you didn't have any formal undercover training. You just went no. into this. Right. I didn't, actually. That's ballsy. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was. I mean, listen, I was a young guy. I had no family to worry about, no wife, no kids. I just worried about myself and, you know, I was able to take care of myself for the most part. But it's like a hard job, though, too. Like, it's acting and you're never off and you have to be around you know in wild situations and convince people yeah like it's a crazy whenever i talk with people who have done undercover work i'm like whoa and it seems like you're just like huh okay another day at the office you know i i, I you know the thing about it is i if you are looking to search the web privately and not have all these websites track you when you leave, check out my friends over at Privato VPN. Privato is the VPN company that gives you full privacy while giving you absolutely no loss in speed whatsoever. It's a beautifully fast working pumping VPN. We love that. And you are allowed to use it on up to 10 different devices at a time. So happy hunting across every single electronic device you own. If you use the link in my description, you will see my landing page with the site and there's a plan there for $4.99 a month. It is the same one I use. You're going to love it, so check it out, and it supports the show. I hung around with bad kids as a little kid, bad guys. I know what bad guys are thinking, you know, not, of course, not always, but you hang around enough knuckleheads, you know what a, a guy's thinking. Um, I knew if I could get work the greed factor in and make them feel like they were going to make money off me, mm. it would work. And what happened in this case was kind of interesting. <clears throat> the, the, the female who I initially meet, she says, I think I know somebody that you, you would like to meet. And she calls up some, uh, she beeps some guy. He meets me uh, at a diner. He's an Italian guy that was in an accident. And he was a paraplegic, oh, quadriplegic or paraplegic. He had like a, spe he had a special vehicle because he couldn't use his legs. I think he could only use part of his, one of his arms. Mm. Anyway, he had gotten into an accident with a car that was delivering a Cadillacs. 
You know when you see oh, all like those cars? Oh, like one of the big... Yeah. Oh, yeah. And part of the deal was... And he lived? Yeah. Wow. And part of the deal was he gets a brand new Cadillac every year. <laughs> Believe it or not, that was the deal he told me. That's uh, like the Bobby Bonilla contract. <laughs> isn't that crazy? It's, wow. Right. So she introduces me to... This guy comes, he meets me. Italian guy, you said. Yeah. He was a, a little older than me at the time. Um, and he tells me, what are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing with this... And really, which I didn't know at the time, but he was she was a prostitute for him. That's how she knew him. She, you know, she was a hooker mm. that he would pay. Uh, he says, "What are you doing?" I said, "Yeah, I'm looking to cop uh, some crack, maybe some dope, uh, some weight." He says, "All right, I'll get you guys." Now they all knew him, and he was a user, drug user. So they all knew he was a messed up guy. Like mm. he, he calls them, and again they see me, and he vouched for me. Which he shouldn't. Of course, he shouldn't have. He didn't know me from a hole in the world. Other than I was an Italian guy from Brooklyn. He was Italian. He was actually mobbed up a little bit. Um, his family was. Uh, and he vouched for me. And once he vouched for me, I was actually in pretty good shape. That's all it takes. Yeah. You know, once you're like in, and that's what they all say. They're like, once you're in, yeah, then it gets easier. I guess... I don't know. Maybe I overthink it because I'm still thinking like every time someone says something where it's like, oh, there's a code word, you know, you're processing in your head and you're like, okay, well, how do I get them from there to there? And I'm just picturing my overthinking ass in that situation. Just like I probably wearing it on my face. Just like, <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. No, I'm, yeah, let's let's do that. Well, you, you, know? you know what? In this case, it's kind of fun, interesting. Uh, I was actually meeting them on Stillwell Avenue at a diner to do a deal. And is this down Coney Island? Yeah, Coney Island, yeah. Coney Island. And um, <clears throat> a guy from my neighborhood, a, well, a very connected guy from my neighborhood, who two, he was my sister's age, which is two years older than me, used to come to my house, uh, swim in my swimming pool, play football, was a, was a linebacker. Uh, I knew him really well. We were really friendly. Um, and like I said, he was a connected guy. He was doing all kinds of construction projects, uh, Knew Sammy the Bull, knew all these guys. Mm. He pulls up. He had a Rolls Royce at the time. And I'm in the diner with these black guys hanging out outside. And he pulls up in his Rolls Royce. And I I swear, I, I must have I shit when I saw him. Because the first thing I figured, he's going to say, is, Hey, Mike, what's up? How's everything? How's the job? Uh, so I see him. And he comes out of the car. He sees me. He gives me a big hug and a kiss, like a mob kiss and hug. Goes into the diner. He don't say a word. Comes out, says goodbye. Did, did they see that? They saw it. And they were like amazed. They made him for a mobster just by his looks. So what did what'd they say to you? They're like, oh. They didn't connected. say anything, but they just assumed from that little interaction that I'm who I say I am. Wow. And it worked. So I see him years later. He's, I put that story in my book. I see him years later at a, at a wake. And he says to me, Page 84, right? <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's right, because I changed his name in the book. Uh, he said, cool. I remember. <laughs> that's wild, yeah. man. Yeah, he knew I was doing work, you know? And uh, he was sharp enough not to give it up, basically. There's an understanding there. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. But you didn't just do drug stuff, right? You got into other things, no? Yeah, well, later on, I got into some other pretty cool stuff. Like, how, how later on? Like, how many years were you just doing drug work so i did uh well i did the plain clothes on the avenue uh then i went we went in dea probably like 88 1988 
And that was like a few years kind of deal? Yeah, and I think I got out of there about 91, say 91, 92. And then what happened? Then I went into the detective bureau as a regular detective sergeant. And then for a short time, I ended up in Missing Person Squad, which was part of Special Investigations. Now, how? here's a good question. How do they decide, like, because you have to get someone who becomes good at that had to get started there at some point. Like, how do they decide to put you in that? Obviously, like, you're a talented cop, but, like, you had worked in, in drugs. So are they saying, oh, because he was a plainclothes guy who had to make friends with everyone in the no. community? Like, are they doing any of that tie together? No. And actually, missing persons isn't, like, a prestigious unit. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's part of special investigations, which is a prestigious division. Missing persons, um, it's like a stepping stone for a lot of bosses, for sergeants, which was mm. what I was. And then from there, you go to better units or other units. Um, but in general, the thing about missing persons, people don't really, which I never got, and I'm a, I was a cop, and I still never understood it. Most missing persons or missing people come back. So there's not like a hundred, there's not like thousands of cases of really intense cases of where these people went. They were like runaways, um, uh, separated parents, the father takes the kid from the mother, they, mm. and they come back. If they run away, they come home. Uh, custodial disputes, they settle them. Like, so there's not like, so there's not, not many uh, hard pressing cases in, in missing person. Is that your operating MO when you hear about, so when you hear one come in, are you thinking like, okay, it's probably a runaway? Yeah, well, as a boss, I would get it after the detective got it. And then, you know, he'd bring it. if it was something heavy, a detective would say, oh, this is bad. But for the most part, they're not bad. That, there's nothing going on. You know, it's very rarely. Like, mm. um, so high profile would be if a lot of times there's a family member who's a, a, rel, a politician and his kid went missing. Like, legitimately maybe ran away or... or got involved with drugs and took off or something something like that. Then it becomes a big deal because he's a politician right. or he's, you know, he don't, donates to politics, uh, that kind of thing. But in general, um, and then you, you, you have some high-profile cases like Eton Pates, who was the first missing kid on the what, milk what container. What happened there? Uh, so that was like 1979. The mother's looking out the window in Soho. For the first time, she's letting her kid go to school by himself, take the school bus by himself. And she's looking out the window and she turns her head, uh, according to basically all accounts, for like a minute, maybe to attend to one of her other kids. I, I don't remember. And when she turns back, the kid is gone. And he's never seen again. And the bus hadn't come. Yeah, and the bus hadn't come. And he never went to school that day. And so, like a case like that. What is, was his is name? Eton Pates. Eton Pates. Okay. So that, w that was before your time, though. That was before my time. But, but the case I got involved with. It um, had to do with Eton Pates and Son of Sam and a bunch of other stuff. Okay. That's All the right. case from All the missing person case. All right. So explain this one. How'd that happen? Okay. So when I was in missing person, um, I got to work two, I got to work a couple of good cases. That was one of them, Son of Sam. And the other one was a guy named Andre Rand, who was, they did a documentary about him called The Cropsy. He was a, he was like a child serial killer in, mm. from Staten Island. But this particular case, they, and that kind of ties into this a little bit because they think Andre Rand was involved with the satanic cult that these people were involved with. But I don't think he was. 
I never found evidence that he All was. Right, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay. Yeah. So when I'm in missing persons, I get a call from an inmate at Attica. And he tells me... Attica! Yeah. Attica! <laughs> and it's bad up there. Yeah. In fact, I went with a detective, and he had a camera. And he said, I'm going to take a picture of this place. And all of a sudden, we hear, like from a boom, you know, booming micro, uh, speaker, drop your effing camera. <laughs> we're like, what? So he throws the camera. <laughs> yeah, you can, uh, apparently, you're not allowed to take pictures of Attica from, from the parking lot. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Nothing um, to hide there, I guess. Huh? Yeah, he was up in the, uh, the, the the tower with a, with a, a rifle. So I get a call from this inmate at Attica, and he tells me that he now this is in like 1997, let's say. The kid disappeared in 1979. Eton Pates. Oh, so you get a call from an inmate at Attica about Eton. Got right. it. So this and is it, years later. Years later. And he tells me he's got information about Eton Pates, but he screws the name all up, which... He also I, wants something, obviously. Yeah, he wants, he's going up for parole soon, and he wants to get paroled. Um, but the fact that he screwed the name up kind of raised my antenna a little bit, because I figured at the time I thought, you know, internet wasn't big then, if it, it was even existed. Um, and when he screwed the name up, I figured if he was lying to me, he would have his information straight. He would have the kid's mm. name exact. You know, he would have everything straight. And he didn't. He had the name wrong, but close. Close enough, you know, but but wrong. Anyway, I go. we go up there. I bring a detective with me. We go up to Attica. And let me go back a little bit. So he's in jail for sodomizing his infant daughter, this guy. The guy who called you? Yes. And, he, and he's also a 1% biker. Uh, vice president of a biker gang. What, what, what? The name of the gang is called the Rat Pack. And they were under, I think, they were under the Hells Angels, maybe the Mongols, I don't remember. He sodomized his infant daughter. Yeah, he had two kids, uh, and I think he did both, but the infant daughter for sure. I don't remember if the other kid was a boy or a girl. And he did it with the wife, and the wife, I think, testified against him. So they gave her, uh, they gave her some kind of deal. That guy wasn't in jail for life. No, he was coming out. He was coming out. Oh, he was coming out on parole, if he made parole. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we actually saw pictures of what he. Some of the stuff he was doing was horrendous. <laughs> Obviously, right? <clears throat> but in any event, so he's got the he's got this information that he's been holding in, according to him. Um. So he's this big three hundred and fifty pound biker guy. The COs are like, man, he's, a, you know, be careful. You want us to stay with you in the room. It's a little room, small room. Uh, he wants to stay with you. He's got a violent, you know, he's a violent guy. And we're not going to let him because he may not talk in front of them. And he, he certainly doesn't want other people knowing he's giving information up. Yeah. So, of course not. But in any event, what he tells us is that him and his biker gang were contracted to do these, securing these locations. In Yonkers and Westchester, these mansions. And in these mansions, there was satanic stuff going on, rituals. <laughs> drugs, um, all kinds of drugs, all kinds of crazy sex, and satanic rituals. What is it? All right. When when people say satanic rituals, I've never Googled this. So, like, what what are they doing? Well, I'm, I'm, like, I'm sure they do different things on different nights. Maybe they're just... 
worshiping statues of Satan and other <laughs> crap like that. But hey, whatever gets you off, man. Yeah. Well, Fuck. you know, and I always say that I think it was a big part of it was the sex and drug stuff. Okay. You know, just to get you know. Um, that that's how it appeared anyway to me. That's that's my belief. But um, yeah. So he was. Con- they were con- so the idea was that they were contracted to secure the uh, premises to make sure cops didn't come in and civilians that weren't invited basically to these rituals or parties or whatever you want to call them. Um, and eventually he's done so many that they get to know him and they get to know the president of the gang, the biker gang. And they wore their colors to scare any, you know, pain in the asses away and, right. you know. Um, and so now they have like free reign of these parties. They walk in and out, him and the president. And at some point they walk in and they're doing a ritual Satanic ritual, and it has to do with this kid, Eton. They call, now this according to him. Uh, his name was John Lentini. He's since died. Uh, this is the guy who called you with info. Yeah, Tiny was his nickname. So um, Tiny becomes friends with these guys. He walks into the ritual, and he says there's a, a, an altar, and they call up the kid by name, uh, they do some kind of satanic prayers. They measure him with some kind of rope, and then they're going to sacrifice him. And he says he leaves before they sacrifice him. And his uh, the other guy leaves also, the other biker. But he says they sacrificed the kid. But he says he doesn't see it. So this is years ago. This was yeah years ago. So he was saying that the literal live Eton was in there, right? And they wow. Right. Okay, but that's obviously not what ended up being true. Well, why do you say that? Because the they made an arrest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, listen. I I tell I say it all the time. I'm not going. I I can't. I can only give my opinion. Um, I don't know. I didn't take any action in that Hernandez case. That's the guy who did. Ta- they arrested for Eton. Yeah. Not long ago. Not that. A few years ago. Yeah. The first jury was a hung jury. I think. And then they convicted him on the second trial. Yeah, he got arrested in like 2012 or something. And yeah. then convicted in like 2017 or something right, like that. something like that, right. Okay. So now, he, had a, right. he had a history of mental problems. Yeah, he was also said. like, I think he was legally mentally retarded or right. something like that. So right. let's back up then. Right. So you, this guy tells you that they sacrificed a kid in a house in Westchester. Right. So then it, what happens? Okay, so... <clears throat> So this guy Tiny was a bright guy. Just um, I hate to say that because people always say this mass murder. Not that he was a mass murderer, but these guys are intelligent. But he really was. He was talking about stuff back then that um, he was giving like way too much information. Like we had to keep honing him back into the story. Um, and again, there was no internet. And even if there was, Attica inmates don't have access to the internet. Right. Right. Um, like he was just to give me an example. He was talking about, and I, I I met we met I think once or. Once, maybe twice, but we had several conversations because he kept calling, trying to get out. What's going on? What's going? On? Yeah, I mean, he talked about the Bilderberg Group back in '97. He talked about that uh, where Alex Jones went, that Grove, <laughs> the the fucking uh, out in California. Yeah, I went out to the Grove. Yeah, I can't think. Of, I can never remember the name. They of were worshiping an owl and fucking yeah. each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? This guy was talking about it. Yeah, you know, so he had he had a lot of information. He was he was uh, where was he getting it? So he got the one information from 
guarding the house, but what about the other stuff? Was that all from the same shit? Yeah, from the same group, from the, the supposed cult. Bohemian Grove. There that's what go. it's called. Yeah, yeah. I can't I remember just, that. I forget that first right. one all the time. Me too, all the time. So he's so he had gotten all this years ago, had sat on it, and now he's telling you all well, this. Well, the homicide happened years ago, and actually he had done security for them even prior to the kid being taken. He had um, he had started security for them in like 76, 77. Mm. Actually crossed paths with Son of Sam, with David Berkowitz. According to him. Can you tell people real fast who David Berkowitz was, for those yeah. who don't know? So David Berkowitz was um, nicknamed or called the Son of Sam or the 44 caliber killer. And he was a serial killer. Well, if you believe the, the narrative or the arrest, that he worked alone and he killed, I think, six people and shot like eight people. And um, he did a lot of shootings where Love is Lane type shootings, male and female, um, although he did two females at once and one female by herself, but um, and that was from 1976, and he gets arrested July of 76 to August 77. Yeah, it was, it was like a big scare. Yeah, in New York City. yeah, and yeah. women were changing the color of their hair because they thought he was targeting females with long black hair, so they were changing their hair color, keeping the hair up and you know like a bun, so he couldn't. M- maybe I'm remembering this wrong. Isn't he now one, because he's like reformed in prison right. or whatever, but isn't he one of the people saying he didn't act alone? Well, what happened was when he got caught, he said that his neighbor's dog told him to do it. Right. And the yeah. neighbor was Sam Carr and the dog, so the, that's why he got the son of Sam. Right. But, um, and he said the dog told him to do it. That's what he said initially. And then uh, a few years later, he said that's not really what happened. He said, I was part of this cult, this satanic cult. And um, we did this together. Other people were involved. There were other shooters, people that drove. Um, he admitted to doing so- a couple of them, but he said there were other people involved. I don't remember. Was he from Wealth? Or was no. He, yeah, he, no. he was kind of yeah, like, like a loner. Working class. Yeah, he was in the, uh, for the, in the Army for a little while. and I think he, he, I think he was a postman, actually, when he... When he when they arrested him. So how did he, did he, has he said how he got allegedly caught up with that cult? Uh, yeah, well, from Yonkers. He said he was from Yonkers and that's where the cult, there were uh, individuals involved with it there and he just got involved with the wrong crowd who were using drugs and involved with Satan and all that crap and that's why he got involved. Mm. Okay, so that's like a whole nother narrative there. But then, what? why did we bring up the Son of Sam again? Because Tiny... Cross paths with him. Oh, he crossed paths with him directly. Right. right. But this guy, you know, he wasn't going in the rich neighborhoods though, because Tiny was he was doing security for serious people. Yeah, but they also met in in Yonkers in different locations, part <laughs> uh, regular house parties in the park in uh, Untermeyer Park, where they you know supposedly met where his cult supposedly met on occasion. Um. So. They supposedly sacrificed this kid, and Tiny had information on it. He saw it. Well, he doesn't see the actual sacrifice. He says he left at the time, which perps always say that. They don't always. really put themselves yes. in the mix. Miss. So, which uh-huh. doesn't mean they're lying, but it could be lying about themselves where they're at. Because they always say, well, I left before that happened, but right. it happened. Somehow right. they knew it happened. Right. Did he say, like... 
So how they did it, or um, no? He, I think yeah, I think it was. A, I think they sacrificed him with a, some uh, a, like a stabbing situation. Yeah. So he had all this information, but we needed to verify Fuck. it because you know basically he's telling us a story, and he gave us a lot of information. He gave us some names. A lot of the names were old nicknames that didn't really help us. He gave us some names of people that were dead for years, and but he gave us so he gave us some things that were really credible that really panned out. Um, like what? One of the one of the one of the things he had said that one of the other biker gang members gets involved with the cult also. And he does a Son of Sam like killing or shooting. I don't remember if the people died or they just got shot. Over in Cypress Hills, which is and the victims were black. The shooter was black. The biker guy was a black guy. And he said it was never attributed to Son of Sam because the victims were black, as opposed to all the other ones the, that were white. The, yeah, and like the women and everything. Right. Yeah. So it didn't get... So, um, well, so he gives us that, and he gives us something, and I'll tell you how we check that out. And then he gives us... He says, all right, I'll tell you about another um, sacrifice. He said, and maybe you'll find it. So he tells us there was a female that were, were hanging out with him the president of the gang, and a couple of the other satanic guys, people, uh, in Forest Hills Park in Queens. Mm -hmm. Now, the whole district changed regarding the precincts. Everything changed. Like, you know, in other words, it's not the, I don't know, 104th precinct anymore. It's, so the paperwork was going to be really hard to find. But in any event, he says, I don't remember the exact year. He says, but it was cold, uh, snow on the ground. The woman had a tattoo on her back of her son. Or a man's name, I forgot. I think it turned out to be her son's name. Um, and we told her we were just going to use her for a bloodletting, like a like a ceremony. Take some blood, cut her a little bit, and take some blood. And she was into, you know, she was into it, the girl. And we laid her on one of those cement tables, you know, like the way they play checkers or chess on. Yeah. They lay her on the table, and they take this heavy sword. Um, like from the Renaissance age, is kind of looking sword. And when she thinks she's going to be blessed with it, the president of the gang, of the biker gang, actually um, crashes it down on her chest. He says, if you could find that case, that'll prove that there's another, you know, this sac sacrifice did happen. So it took us a long time. I had some civilian in one police plaza that was really, uh, you, you know, a hard worker. He found the case. And sure as hell, they find the, the there was a DOA female found in the snow with a tattoo of a, a man's name on the, the, the I think the son's shit. name. Shit! And the the best part is the first person that the first or only person that the detectives talked to was the president of the biker gang, and he basically said, "Yeah, I know her. Um, I haven't seen her, but he was one of the only people that the detectives talked to." And, and he, he knew what had happened to He her. was the one that did it, according to Tiny. So th they got it. Okay. I thought I thought I might have heard that wrong, but I did hear that right. The biker gang themselves ended up getting involved with the cold itself. Right. And they weren't just protecting it anymore. They right. were like in it. Well, not all, but not all the bikers. Some of them. Some of them. And the president of the gang was a guy who was in on it. Yeah. So when, even when they were up in Westchester and stuff, he was actually, yeah. in addition to security, he's like in there. Right. Got it. Right. 
he didn't do the kid. He didn't have anything to do with the kid. He was just watching at that point. And then later he becomes like a, a high priest, him and Tiny. Both. A high priest. Oh. Yeah, they become like high priests. Oh, so Tiny got really deep too. Yeah, Tiny gets really deep. Yeah. Is that really perhaps <clears throat> why he later committed said crime on infant? Well, he was in for his daughter. That's the case he was in on. Oh, oh yeah, yes, right, yeah, right. yes, yes, well, yes. Right. Well, because the whole thing is like their, you know, their whole uh, mo basically is crazy sex and sex with kids and you know minors. What and, the fuck? You know, so he fit right in. You know, he fit right in. Uh, but no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, did did he become that because he was there, or was he already? I mean, doing that shit. I'm assuming he was probably already doing that. And that just attracted this, uh, was something that he found like-minded people. I'm really glad I can't relate to this, but like what, what makes you want to do that? If it's not driven by a cult where you are literally, you lose your fucking mind. I, I guess then it's possible. But like if he was already doing that before, like what the fuck is wrong with you? Yeah, well, I mean, he <clears throat> later on when he 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 finally makes parole, not because of us, um. But anyway, later years later, he marries another female. Oh God! Right, and her first husband was a pedophile, arrested for pedophilia. Then she marries this guy. Oh, she's got a type. <clears throat> yeah, that's what I said. She's got a type, and when she got pregnant by him, the state of Pennsylvania took the kid away from her just because of. Who she was, you know, the idiot that she was married to. I actually don't feel bad for her because she knowingly <clears throat> married him. Yeah, well, like you said, her first husband was a yeah. pedophile, and then she married this guy. Sick fuck. She had kids taken away from her prior. Good. Yeah. You know what? In that case, <clears throat> good. Yeah. So <clears throat> he gives you this case where he is able uh, to review, describe the tattoo perfectly, the individual, the approximate time, the way she was killed, right. and everything. And was there, but was there, a way that you guys were able to check it to see if he was just taking something else where the killing happened, blunt force trauma was well, something well, to the we, chest? Yeah, well, we found the uh, the ME report said that that's what, exactly what she was killed from. Not from the sharpness of a blade, but the breaking of the sternum and the ribs and everything else. Just like he said, because he told us the knife wasn't a sharp knife or the sword wasn't sharp. In fact, it was heavy and dull. So how <clears> could, here's my question. Did you check out to see if, like, oh, they just killed her for something else and, like, killed her in a bar fight? Something yeah, stupid. No, because uh, <clears throat> the president of biker gang had long been dead. And if the, the, the original detectives had no one else to talk, there was no one else to talk to, basically, because they had no one on the uh, complaint report, basically, mm. other than the biker guy, and he's dead. So... <clears throat> Could they have killed her that way for another reason? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sure they could have. Yeah, that would be my question there. But he gave us another one. He gave us, one. yeah, he gave us another one. So, is this all from one meeting? Uh, one meeting and a couple of phone calls. <laughs> yeah, because like I said, he wanted to get out. He didn't want to get. He didn't want parole to not let him out. So the the second one is <clears throat> the black biker guy. His part, another another. One percenter. He did that shooting, um, and he was in jail at the time. On on on. Actually, he was in jail on another on another sexual crime. That guy was the the black biker. But that's besides the point. Anyway, 
I, he says, go talk to this guy. He'll give up, maybe he'll give up the Cypress Hill shootings and the Son of Sam type shootings they were and the cult. And um, he knows about Eton and he wasn't there, but he knows about it. So you're, just to review, your guy <clears throat> is telling you to go talk to this other guy. Who's also an inmate somewhere else. At somewhere else. Sing Sing. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They, the, the best, pre- yeah. you're hitting the best prisons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we, they only go to the best places. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. I said, well, there's no incentive for this guy to talk to me. Why Why would he give up a shooting that he did? He says, there is. He says, he gets in a fight in Brooklyn, uh, East New York, Brownsville. I don't remember where. He remembered. I don't remember. He says, he gets in a fight in Brooklyn over a basketball game. He goes to his car. He takes out a gun. He shoots this guy in front of a whole park full of people playing basketball and watching this particular game. Never gets arrested for it. Nobody questioned him about it. The guy dies. No one. Everybody was afraid of him. Nobody said anything. They get rid of the body, or I, I don't think so. I think he just shoots the guy and leaves. <clears throat> okay, because he was a scary guy. So uh, no witnesses. A park full of witnesses, but nobody came. Yeah, forward. that's my point. Right. Like they're not talking. Right. Yeah. Nobody's talking. Yeah. He says if you could get him, uh, you know, to confess to, maybe you got something with this that could help. So what I do is I take a. a Manila folder. I put it, yellow pages in it. I write some information on the folder, and I go up there that sync thing, and I throw the folder on the desk. I say, "You see that?" I said, "That's the case." And I found the case. I, I found the shooting incident, the actual sh- DOA in the park, shooting victim in the park. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I knew when it was, what year, what day, and all that stuff. I said, "That's this case is your victim that you shot. These are witnesses." You're going to go to jail for that homicide in the park. As soon as you get out of here, you're not going home from here. You're going, we're locking you up for this homicide. So he was shocked because he thought he was, you know, that was the least of his worries. All these years later, he thought he was in good shape. But you didn't really have anything. I had nothing. No, nothing. Smooth. Yeah. So he says, uh, how do I get out of that? You know, how do I get away from this? I said, well, tell me about that shooting in Cyprus, the son of Sam shooting. Tell us about the cult. Tell us about the shooting. And this was the black biker. Yeah. And he does. He gives up the shooting. And to, to a black, and black guy and black girl were making out. He gets out of his car. He shoots them, gets in his car, and he leaves. He writes out a full statement. Confessing. Confesses to that. And he confesses to the shooting in the park. <laughs> how does this happen? Like, how do you, like, I've heard a lot about the psychology of, like, the whole rapport building which has also been used for bad, by the way, obviously, to get people to confess to things they didn't do. But, like, you have somebody in a room. You have them in there for two, three, four hours, whatever it is, in a prison. How do you start with, I have this case against you. No, 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 don't. Fuck, how do I get out of this? To eventually working all the way around to get another case and then get him to even confess on that and feel good about it. Well, I mean, his incentive was to get out of jail. You know, it wasn't that hard. But now you're taking him to, to trial for two homicides. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, well, how does this happen? Yeah. Well, you're allowed to lie. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, that's wild. Yeah. So he gives up. So now you have two that are, were described perfectly. Right. And you are buying the whole satanic thing. It, had you gone back and, because you weren't involved in the case because it was before you, but had you gone back and pulled the Son of Sam files? Um, 
I don't think we. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I don't remember. Maybe some. I mean, the files are thousands of files. Yeah, there's a lot. So I don't think we took many of them. You Did know? you go talk to him? Well, what happens is, um, well, just to backtrack, just a little bit. Sure, sure. <clears throat> so T- Tiny's gang was in Brooklyn and Manhattan. The the bike they had clubhouses. Uh, Borderline Brooklyn, Queens, Bushwick. I don't know if you're familiar with Bushwick or Ridgewood, actually. Yes. It's borderline Brooks, Brooklyn, Queens. So, um, just, I just, I'm only pointing this out because it was kind of goes to show that he was giving me information that was honest at some, a lot of points, tiny, maybe not everything, but so at some point I asked him about the, his guns and he said, oh, you always used to carry, I forgot what it was. Nothing, I don't think it's anything heavy, maybe like a 25. And I asked him, where'd you get that 25? And he says, I bought off, I used to buy my guns off this guy, Harry, uh, in uh, Ridgewood. And I asked him to describe Harry. So he says, yeah, Harry's a big, muscular, Puerto Rican guy, older. He goes through the whole thing. So I grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn, which is probably 45 minutes from Bush, uh, Ridgewood. But I used to train in a gym on St. Nicholas Avenue and Myrtle, which is considered Ridgewood, is, is Ridgewood, Queens. And Queens is considered Brooklyn and Queens, whatever. But um, so there was a boxing gym downstairs, and upstairs was a weightlifting gym. And most of the gym was Spanish and black. And I said, Harry. And I said, I think I, I said I, to myself, I think I know who Harry is. <laughs> so I go to my old gym. I hadn't been there in years at this point. In fact, the gym had moved not too far, but it moved from where its original location. I go there one day. Don't you know Harry's there oh working my God. out? And he sees me and he hugs me because I hadn't seen him in many years since I've been there. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not here for that. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. So I asked him. I said, Harry, let me ask you something. You remember a guy named Tiny? He said, yeah, yeah. And, I, and he knew I was a cop. Harry knew. At this point, I think he knew I was a cop. I, I was young when I went there. I went there from like the time I was 17 to like my early 20s. Uh, I said, do you, ever sell, do you ever sell tiny guns? And he said, yeah, I sold them quite a few guns. I said, okay. So, turn around? Throw, so, throw the cuffs on? Put your hands behind your back? Alright, so what, what um, happens next for real? For real? Alright, so anyway, uh, confirmed a couple of things with Tiny. So now, we have enough, at least I figured, where we could go talk to Berkowitz. Son of Sam. Son of Sam. And see... Um, well, you know, he gives us other stuff that we kind of verify. A lot of stuff we couldn't. He gave us a location up in, way up in upstate New York, that there might be dead bodies and in the buried in the ground. And um, the father let us check the grounds. And then when we were going to get the ground penetrating radar, the guy, this particular guy's father said, "No, no, that I'm not. You know, that I'm not going to let you do. I'm not going to let you dig my yard." But anyway, he gave us a, like the the fact that he gave us this location and it turned out to be a legit location. Anyway. Now we're going to go talk to Berkowitz and see if we get him to give up some of these names that he was going to give up. He had at some point decided to talk, tell the truth, that he was involved with a cult. I think it was after everything too, right? Well, yeah. First he said the dog nonsense. Yeah. Then a couple of years later, he's going to give it up. He gets, they grab him, meaning inmates grab him and slice him up and he just misses jugular vein. And when that happened, he said, I'm never going to talk again. I got family on the outside. He got spooked. They, you know, if their intention was to, to keep him from talking, it worked. Mm. But anyway, we made a reserva- appointment to go see him. 
And the bosses on the PD told me not to go. I made appointments again, kind of on the QT, and they found out and they told me again not to go. And basically that's where the case died. Wow. Okay. That's sketchy. Crazy, right? That's very sketchy. That has me asking some questions. You know, I always used to say that I've, I've heard police pe- police personnel in the past, uh, whether it's federal or local, say the, you know, the case was shut down. And I always said to myself, that's bullshit. Cases don't get shut down. Yeah. My case got shut down. Because you didn't go see him? Well, because they won't let us go see him. And they told us to stop working on the case, basically. Oh, they told you to stop working on this altogether. Right. Right. That's scary. See, like, there's a thing, and it's sad that the world works this way. But if I look at this unbiased for a second, and let's let's assume everyone is an okay actor. None of them are evil or whatever. But, like... You start with a huge case like that, like Son of Sam, and then you have some other huge case with Etan Pates, right? right? Right. And so Son of Sam gets solved, right? Quote unquote. You at least have someone who you know was involved, and congratulations, you can walk the streets again in New York. We did our job. Etan doesn't get solved, and then it kind of floats away, and it's like, okay, well, we fucked that one up, so let's just kind of forget about that. And there becomes this human thing where if a case gets out of control like you the facts you find like stuff you did is inconvenient meaning it's not just like oh he was bludgeoned to death by a homeless guy on mm-hmm. the corner or something it, it involves like a lot of people money power it can get to a point where it's like are we all going to lose our jobs if we now tell the truth that we found out what happened because we did our jobs to find out what happened you know what i mean yeah, sure. there's a weird psychology to it that i i don't want to say i understand but like I don't envy the people who are in that position, right. but it doesn't make it, it doesn't make the, the result of maybe in the case of like shutting down case, it doesn't make that right. Right. You know course. what I mean? Like yeah, that's still wrong. It's just like you have been handed a lose, lose, right. bring it out. Heads are going to roll. You don't bring it out. Heads are, might roll or at the very least, like you, you didn't do your job and you got to live with that. That's heavy. Yeah, man. I mean, he had given us a, uh... Like, according to Tiny, and again, you know, the information I'm given is what I, what I got. So you could either, some people say, yeah, it's true, and whatever, it's not true. But he gave us information regarding, like, people with a lot of money were involved. Like, the Manhattan DA's nephew was involved with the cult, and this one's, uh, and, you know, you, when you hear it, you say, ah, that's bullshit, let's go, you know. And then when you find out they cut the case out, or like, well, maybe somebody heavy was involved, or people with money are involved, and... You know, people are going to get embarrassed and, you know, they made a collar. Everybody with Berkowitz, everybody was happy. The shootings apparently or appeared to stop. So. Was that, as far as like your time working on the missing persons unit, was that the firework? Was that obviously like the main case of memory, of note? Well, that one in the Andre Rand, who was they say might have been connected to this cult, but I, like I don't believe he was. Okay, yeah, we said we come back to that. So, what was the story there? So, Andre Rand was a guy from St. Island who I don't know if you remember Willowbrook. Do you remember Willowbrook? Geraldo Rivera did that big expose. No. So Willowbrook was a uh, a state run hospital mental facility for oh, mentally handicapped people. Yeah, one of those. 
but really bad. He blew the lid off of it. Like he somehow got in with a camera, and there were naked, you know, mentally disturbed people uh, living in feces and their own piss, and they were treated terrible, and and it became a whole big thing, man. Like you know, literally blew the lid off of what was going on in there. They were being mistreated. Um, wow. It was like a like a like a hellhole. Um, and nobody apparently knew what was going on there. And somehow, like I said, Javaldo Rivera befriended somebody, and he got in. He got in with a camera and his video of it, of, of uh, Willowbrook, um, which is in Staten Island. Well, this guy Andre Van worked there. First as a maintenance guy, and then he worked there as a physical therapist. How he became a physical therapist is beyond me because he had no college, you know, he had no qualifications. But that just goes to show what was going on there. And they weren't doing physical therapy for these people. If you see, like I said, if you ever see the video, I'm gonna have to check that it's out. It's ridiculous. What was the? What, maybe I can also find it while you're talking. But what was? What years are we talking here when he was doing this? Um, I think it was the expose was in the mid seventies, seventy or seventy early seventies. Willowbrook, you can't miss it. It'll come right up, I'm sure. Willowbrook Mental Hospital. Let's see. Nineteen seventy two. Yeah, that makes Oh, wow, yeah. Geraldo Rivera's been around a long time, huh? Yeah, that's what made his career. I didn't know anything about this. I also don't know a hell of a lot about him. Yeah. All right, I think this is a... This is probably going to get... If I stick it on YouTube, I'm using someone else's content, so I can't put it up. But for people that want to look it up, it's called Willowbrook, The Last Great Disgrace, Geraldo Rivera, 1972 Expose. So you can check that out. It's a 27-minute documentary. Okay, so he he figures out how to get in there. Yeah, so he gets in there with a camera. But uh, this guy, Andre Rand, worked there, like I said. Yes. First, the maintenance guy, then a physical therapist, whatever. And um, he's mentally not, um, I guess, I don't know how to put it gently, but not where he should be. He's slow, I guess. I don't know what terminology it was. But that's what they would have used back then, I guess. Um, and... One of the female workers goes missing, and they—he was like the last guy seen with her. Then uh, this is going back to the um, early '80s. A little girl—he targeted children that had mental disorders, for the most part. So they were putting kids in his hospital. Too? Yeah, but that ain't where he was getting these kids from. He worked there. He also lived on the grounds. It's on, it was like a thirty—I'm uh, uh, sorry, like a three hundred acre ground. Uh, the ground, the Willowbrook was on 300 acres, mm. and he also lived on the grounds. And then they closed Willowbrook at some point, and there's all these underground tunnels and stuff, and he lived in there. And there were other homeless people that lived in those tunnels. And they connected one building to the other and all that. Non- so he was living as a homeless person working there. Yeah. And, and no one knew that. No one knew that, no. And in the 80s, he, well, at first he, there's a missing woman that they think he may have killed in the 70s. And then at some point he takes us, he steals a school bus and he goes to like the uh, YMCA and he takes 11 kids on the school bus and he takes them to Newark Airport to look at the airplane. So he basically kidnapped 11 kids. Um, they catch him for that. They lock him, you know. I think what he, I think he was planning on doing some kind of damage to them, but he couldn't figure out what to do with all these kids. And he got like overwhelmed and... They arrest him for that. I think he only does like 10 or 11 months. And then from when he comes out, a bunch of different kids go missing, mentally handicapped uh, 
Jesus. girl, a, another a, a guy, a bunch of a bunch of people go missing. And then in 1981, and then he eventually gets arrested for one of them. A girl named, uh, I think her name was, jeez, uh, I'm throwing a blank. Anyway, he gets arrested for one of these. Tia Hesey Jackson? Yeah, I don't think he gets arrested for her. Um, Ann Hughes? Nope. Holly Ann Hughes? That's the one I worked on, actually. That's the case I'm going to tell you about. Alice Pereira? Nope. The next one, I think. Those are the three. Sure, sure, sure. Something with an S. Uh, anyway, I don't know. Anyway, I think it's, it. in 1987, okay. he gets arrested, I think, for her killing. Okay, wait, hold on. There's something down here. Jennifer Schweiger? That's it. Okay. Jennifer Schweiger. Got it. Yeah, he gets arrested for Jennifer Schweiger's killing. He's the last person they they see him with. They see her with him. Um, and it says she was born with Down syndrome, was reported missing on July 9th, 87. Witnesses spotted Jennifer walking with Rand. Her body was found underground after a 35-day search while combing the area around Willowbrook State School. I'm reading off Wikipedia, people. Right. A particular spot caught the eye of retired New York City firefighter George Kramer. He returned with the police to... The entire body was unearthed from the shallow grave, and the remains were positively identified as those of Schweiger. Police searched the grounds for evidence and found one of Rand's makeshift campsites in proximity. So one of those underground yeah. things in proximity to the right. grave. Right. They don't charge him with the homicide, but they charge him with her kidnapping. How and does that he, work? I don't know. And he gets a bunch of years. He does some time for that. But in 81, he he was seen with this girl, Holly Ann Hughes, yeah. who was seven years old. She went to the bodega to buy soap. She didn't even have enough money for soap. She was a poor little girl. Um, and you're getting this in the 90s. Yeah. What happens is I get, I'm, while I'm a missing person, I run into a woman that I know, a girl I know, my age, um, give or take. I hadn't seen her in years. And um, I tell her I'm working, I moved to Staten Island. She doesn't even know I'm a missing person. She just knows Staten Island. She, she's not from Staten Island. She said, oh, I had to used to have a good friend from Staten Island. Um, her daughter went missing. I said, "Who's? what's her name? And she said her daughter's name was Holly Ann Hughes. Mm. And she tells me the mother's name. Um, I kind of knew a little bit about it, but not, like I didn't really know that much about it. I said, oh yeah, she's like, that's my friend. Uh, now this woman uh, had a really tough life, my friend. Uh, drugs and other stuff. And Holly Ann Hughes' mother too. That's how they knew each other. Mm. She said, yeah, the little girl went missing. They never found the guy who killed him, this and that. So I went and I took the case, and I went through it. And at this point, I was living on Staten Island. I said, you know, this case is really interesting, and I think there's stuff to be done on it. And there was one in particular guy that the detectives questioned a few times of what he saw. And basically, all he ever said he saw was Holly and Hughes and Rand, but never together, the same night. Her in the store, him driving by. Her out of the store, him driving by. But never together. And I just felt like this guy saw more than he said. And he just didn't want to get involved. What but, made you think that? Uh, you know, I don't know. It just it, it kind of bugged me that they interviewed him so many times. Um, and Because I thought Ryan was guilty. And I said, this guy had... He, he had to grab this girl. And this guy, by his own account, was nearby. And at this point, he's only been charged and put in jail or put in prison, found guilty of one kidnapping. Yes. Nothing, no murders. Nothing to do with Holly Ann Hughes. Okay. And he was due to get out. This was the mid-90s. Oh, shit. He was on his way out. So I do some 
preliminary work with some of the other witnesses, and I finally catch this guy. Burns was his name, John Burns. Um, and I, he don't want to get involved. He lives uh, in St. Island. He's an older guy. Uh, I think like a reformed drunk, uh, alcoholic. Right. He don't want to really get involved. And I really go after him. Like really go after him. Like I'm gonna lock you up if you know if for for other stuff or whatever you're doing. If you don't just be honest with us and tell me what really happened. And basically, after sitting him down and reading him the riot act, he says, "All right, all right, I'll tell you. I saw them together. They were, she was in this car. I saw him." call her over to the car and I see her get in the car and I see them drive off together. Do you think, have you ever thought like out of fear he told you what you wanted to hear? Well, there was another witness that seen Holly approach the car and not get in. Mm. So it made all the sense in the world that he's seen her get in the car and drive, you know, and he had said that he saw the car driving around. So, I was sure that this guy's seen it. And he finally said, I didn't want to get involved. I don't want to be known as a rat. I'm like, what are you, this isn't a it's bullshit. A kid. Yeah, it's not a bullshit drug deal. You're not ratting on, yeah. you're ratting on a guy that killed other kids too. And he's getting out of jail. And he finally, yeah, I think uh, his conscience got to him and he's like, yeah, you're right. Let me So you, you broke open the case. Yeah. So, but that was one eyewitness. Did you have to, I assume you had to get other evidence to be yeah. able to. Yeah, well, once that happened, we called the DA. Literally, like right there and then. We got him a good statement. I think we brought him down to videotape him. And then um, there was all the cooperating witnesses, but without without him, they weren't. it wasn't enough. With him, and that was enough. And then he was put on trial for that. Yeah, but well, eventually I got transferred because I had, like I said, that was kind of like a stepping stone for me. And excuse me, the boss didn't want me to leave at this point. The lieutenant, he's like, "You gotta stay with this case." I'm like, "It's almost done. You don't need me for this case anymore. It's really, it's done." And they ended up getting all these other cases though too with it, right? So like Alice well, Pereira. Well, he was always yeah. He didn't get charged with any of those, but those are cases that he was always suspected of doing. Oh, okay. So that's oh, that's why it says alleged, right? Yeah, yeah. but okay. they, you know, again, but he did get charged with Holly and found guilty. Yes, for killing her. Yeah, well, for kidnapping, they didn't charge him with the killing again. Yeah, did he ever get out of jail? No, he's in. He won't get out. He he was going to die in jail for kidnapping only. Yeah, he never got charged with a homicide. No. Yeah, it says convicted. There it goes. Convicted kidnapper of two children, suspected serial killer. Yeah, currently serving twenty five years to life in prison. And they thought he was just to get back to that. They thought he was involved with that Berkowitz cult because they didn't think this guy had the mental capacity to commit these crimes by himself. How'd they make? But that I, tie? I don't believe he did. I don't believe he was involved with any cult. Who claimed that he was involved? Um, I don't know if you call them conspiracy people, you know. But they always say because there was satanic stuff on those grounds. You know, in those tunnels, there's all kinds of shit on the wall, and and um, what but, the fuck but, was happening in the '80s, man? I don't <laughs> like, know, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ! I don't know. It was so, all new to me. I mean, I wasn't familiar with any of this stuff. But you know what? Actually, <clears throat> what about the? Because before you were explaining it, we brought it up because I thought you were going to bring it in in that direction. But the whole case with with Eton 
where, as we now know, they told you lay off it and you had to leave it there. But that guy, Pedro Hernandez, did get arrested in 2012 and then was found guilty in 2017. And there's the reports on that are that this guy, he was like 51 or something when he got arrested and claimed that he was a bodega. He worked at the bodega that was like right by where Eton was when he was 18 years old. And the claims were like members of his church. He lived in South Jersey and members of his church, of his church said he had confessed to it right. in church. It was like this known thing. And then they ended up taking him, you know, in on it right. and they put him in jail for 25 to life. But you you don't buy that that guy did it. <clears throat> I don't know. Honestly, I, I can't give you a definitive answer. You know, I mean, by everyone's account, he's mentally uh, incapacitated, yeah. really. Right? Yeah. Um, could he have devised that whole thing in his head and believed it himself and talked himself into thinking he did it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They never found Eton's body. <clears throat> Was he sharp enough to actually get rid of, hide the body good enough for the, you know, they were doing all kinds of searching for this kid. At age 18 in <clears throat> Manhattan. I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, maybe I'm not. I'm not knocking the the work the detectives did. I'm not saying they railroaded this guy because I'm sure that's not the case. Um, the jury convicted him, but you know, am I 100 percent sure he did it? I'm not. The satanic ritual thing is just like that's gonna stick with me. I know I'm gonna go down that rabbit hole and look at that. I don't understand. I guess I just don't. I mean, I don't understand how you think like that at all, regardless of where you're from. But then the whole, like, when they talk about it in the context of powerful society, right? Like, right. really rich people, like right. the elites. Right. The blood what drink, drinking the blood. the fuck are you doing? Do you watch, do you follow, are you in, are you, have you read any of that stuff? Do you not see any of it? Not really. Like, I really... I, I mean, there were celebrities talking about drinking blood. Have you seen that recently? Actually, I did. Okay. I know what one you're yeah. talking about with fucking Megan I mean, Fox and when, and when you don't hear... Yeah. When you don't hear about this stuff, or you don't, like, if I didn't have a little bit of an intimate knowledge of it, you'd think it's so crazy. But then when you hear, and it's not only her, there were other celebrities, like, well-known celebrities who wear blood on their Angelina neck. Angelina Jolie and Billy Joe yeah. Thornton. Right. And, yeah. And, and, all, and um, even other ones that are on Ellen's show, talking about how they do this stuff with blood to make themselves pretty and stuff. Angie was, in, in fairness, though, she was, like, very emo when she was a teenager and then this was shortly after and she like had a sexual revolution or whatever. She was and very what? She was very emo. She oh. was a neat, she was an emo kid when she was like 16, you know, like the fucking chain mail yeah. and all that stuff. Yeah, so yeah. she was like, that was, I don't want to say that's like in someone's nature, but that wasn't, but did, at you, ever that hear point. Her did you ever hear the video of her? No. Oh, man, I, I don't know how you could pull up. There's a video of her talking, and her friend apparently is recording her without her knowing. And she's talking about a ritual. And she's young, She's a lot younger. Angelina Jolie drug video goes viral? No. Mm. Angelina Jolie satanic ritual? Yeah, maybe that'll get it. I got nothing. But like they talk... They, I don't know what happens. Right? Like with the with these groups. Like do you have a draft day? Is there a day where they're like with the yeah. third pick and the fucking entertainers, elites draft, the, the, we select? You see, the guys... The thing I think people don't get is 
um, not you necessarily, just in general, you get drawn to the shit that you're into, man. Like, so like, like he likes like tiny, like little kids. He found out this, you know, somehow he gets contracted and he sees they're doing sex and drugs and crazy shit with kids maybe. And that's what draws him in. And then maybe he draws other people in or, or um, maybe it's the drug aspect, you know. So to me, it's not, you know, I wish you could have found that. If you, you, on your own one day, just check around and listen to it. Yeah, when she t- talks crazy stuff, man. It's on video and she's, the girl's, her friend is actually hiding the, the recorder. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna keep looking for that. Yeah. But you know it it always comes back to this when we bring up this topic. But like looking at this whole Epstein thing, right? And all that. The older I get, the more I realize how many people are fucking pedophiles. Right. I I can't believe I gotta say those words out loud. But do I think that the people online who run you know, the dark web cons- conspiracy groups that claim that literally every single person who's right. ever done anything. Right. Like, do I believe? Absolutely right. not. Right. That's insane. Right. right. It's not, we're not talking even a majority at all here. But the fact that it's not two people. Did you ever, did you ever check out the, uh, the Pentagon, the, the, the child porn on the Pentagon servers? Come on. Bro. So, it, Supposedly, they found more child porn on the Pentagon servers than they found on any servers. You know, could there be investigations going on? No, no, no. Could there be an intelligence reason for that in active measures that they are taking to blackmail people who do that, and therefore it's on the servers? Uh, yeah, I mean, I yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, because like I, I know, I next time I have Andy Bustamante, the CIA guy, in. I think we're going to talk about this some more. We touched it last time, but he is very blunt about the world and how it works. And, you know, there's certain things that he can't talk about. He's not legally allowed to. But from a broad level, he talks about pretty much everything. Yeah. And he... He has said, even on, like, Reddit forums when he does the AMAs through the company and everything... You know, people have asked him directly, like, you know, the people trying to get at the whole conspiracy theory about, like, child trafficking and stuff like that. And he's been open by not denying it and saying, like, yes, there are things that are done in the interest of intelligence that prey on the worst weaknesses of society. And, look, there is a part of me that's like, okay, you're – trying to protect the free world and there's bad people out there and you need to get in with them before you take them down. Okay. But like, where is the line? Right. Like it, it, it's a similar psychology on a way more serious scale than like as the defense attorneys we were talking about earlier, how do you compartmentalize that? Like you have to be in that situation as a spy or something and be like, wow, there's a bunch of 12 year olds being walked in there and you can't go grab them. Right. Yeah, I mean, what what do you think of the whole Epstein thing? Uh, you know, I I hate to give an opinion if I don't really have the, I only have the facts that we read in the paper. I but I wouldn't that I answer. wouldn't be surprised if he was you know if, if he was uh if he was murdered. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I I think that's that part definitely. It's just a matter of like people want to know who, but one thing is like. 
when you talk to a lot of people about it, <clears throat> they seem to think like he was the only one. And it's not like here's the other thing. You look at people in powerful places, it doesn't mean they're not doing like wild shit that's bad somewhere. But we get down these rabbit holes of like, oh no, they must be doing this. And then suddenly like the confirmation bias happens over and over again in these groupthink societies online. And then suddenly it's like, oh, well, okay, well, they're not doing that. So how do we, how do we get there? But I got to think like as a, as a cop who worked around these types of cases, your meter, your red alarm meter for people, the threshold's a lot lower than me. Right. Yeah, and I and I tell you, I, I believe. <clears throat> excuse me. When we were doing this case, we were. Um, I mean, I was going down to St. Mark's. You know, familiar St. Mark's yeah, in yeah, Manhattan, yeah. not far from where I work, not Alphabet City. <clears throat> Even when I was in Alphabet City doing drug cases, they used to get their glassine envelopes from a place on St. Mark, the dealers. So we used to we used to do surveillance of the place where they would get in their glassine envelopes to put the heroin in, and we'd see these fucking these meetings. And we'd say, well, what's going on here? Like, what is that, an NA meeting, a narco meeting or AA meeting or some shit? And uh, people say, no, man, that, 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 that's a whole a whole different group of people you don't want to know about. So <clears throat> we weren't interested in that. We were interested in drugs. But when they would tell us that, what were they doing? Were they, were they pedophile guys looking for kids? Were they uh, satanic people? Who knows? There's so much shit out there that, you know, we don't know. You know, the worst part we do with all this is it's one thing when you have things at, like, the elite level, okay? There's class warfare all the time, and and legitimately so if people are doing wrong things, no doubt. But when it gets in the middle of, like, the political parties, too, and then people got their teams with it, they will stop at nothing to just claim the absolute worst of all these people. And it's like... I think some people, they're clearly sick and they do, they find time for sick things. Like, you know, that guy, Jimmy Savile, mm-hmm. have you seen that story? Sure. That's yeah, a wild totally. documentary on Crazy. Netflix, by the way. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's people like that that exist. Right. And, and look how accepted he was in society. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he was, uh, he was the man. Yeah. So you, he was over in Britain for people that don't know. He was, he was an enormous media star over there and he turned out to be a massive, massive pedophile and they found out officially right after he died. But like you look at that. So that stuff does exist. But what I never want to fall in the trap of is literally everyone's doing it. Every time we see code word for stuff, that's what it is. I I think, I think there's a middle ground with it. And I think like, it doesn't mean that, especially if you're in a position where you investigate things like that, it doesn't mean that you should not look at that. You know what I mean? Tiny had told us about a guy in the, uh, in the, in the, in the, organization in the cult who he had told us he had won the nobel uh nobel prize nobel prize for science and he was a doctor and he gave us a nickname for him i forgot what it was moloch i think or something something stupid but anyway um and he said this guy went to micronesia which i didn't even know where the hell it was and he adopted like 50 kids boys and we found him we found this guy uh his name was uh Doctor, he was a doctor. How do you spell it? Jeez, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, if you put Nobel Peace Prize, uh, Nobel Prize for Science, Gadjuchek, G A D, I guess. Gadjuchek, Gadrick? No, uh, no, uh, 
put Mike Mike Bonasia and and uh, Nobel Prize for Science. It'll come up. Oh, gadget. Yeah. Wow. That's a weird spelling. Okay. Let's pull it up. Uh, Daniel Carlton Gadjusek. Right. Was an American physician, medical died in 08, medical researcher and convicted sex offender who was the co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Physiology of Medicine in 1976 for his work on an infectious agent, which would later be identified as the cause of Kuru, the first known human prion disease. It was a, it is. was a, it was really a, a, a an obscure disease, but he was so intent on winning the prize, he found a cure for this kind of obscure disease. All right, so smart doctor, I guess. But 1996 was charged with child molestation, and after being convicted, spent 12 months in prison. Right. Before that's it. That's it. Before entering a self-imposed exile in Europe, where he died a decade later. His papers are held in the National Library of Medicine in Beth. Oh, so he's still honored after his death. And wow. he had adopted like 50 kids from Micronesia while he was here. Um, I don't know if they legally adopted them, but he got them here legally, I'm sure. And one of those kids is a, claimed, um, you know, made the accusations, and of course they were they were proven true. The accusations were proven true, but a lot of those kids are missing. They couldn't find them. They don't know what happened to them. You ever seen a South Park old episodes, Nambla? No. Sometimes I wonder about they figure this shit out. There was a they they had this running joke and it was funny. Like I, I don't know if I can even laugh at it anymore, though they are hilarious. That's a great show. But they had this running joke called Nambla, the North American Man Boy Love Association. And it was like the, you know, it was a pedophile convention. Right. And like then you start to realize like, oh no. All right, maybe it's not called Nambla, but that's real. Right. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Nuts. Crazy. How do you deal like you've seen some dark shit? Mm-hmm. You see you seem like you're in a good spot though. Like a good place. <laughs> like how do you how do you compartmentalize that? Um You know, I don't know. The bottom line is it's out there. You we're aware of it, you know. You just do the best you can. I, I mean I think <clears throat> I think I've done en- enough to say I've done enough. Not that I'm, you know, if it ever came across my, you know, I would still take action. And I actually, I would like to take action. I would wish I could get involved again without the department and some other ways, you know, but kind of hands are tied at this point in my life. But um can only do so much. Yeah. You know? What, what did you do, by the way, besides after you left Missing Persons? Because you said you got transferred off that. So what else was there after that? Then went to the... uh um, Secret Service. You went to Secret Service? Yes, but not as a not doing protection, just investigations. So I was assigned to the West African and the Electronic Crime Task Force. Okay, all right, let's yeah. go down this rabbit hole. Yeah. What was the? So that's actually a great question. I hear about this, like Matt Cox. I've had him in here. He talks about the Secret Service was chasing him. I've never asked this question. Okay, I always think of the Secret Service as the guy standing there like this right. and hitting their ear, just protecting people. But there's a. They also. Well, they used to fall under the treasury, although not if under homeland security, I, I believe. So they make cases. So they do cases. They, let me tell you, they work hard. They're hardworking guys, man. I always tell everybody. I mean, the DEA guys too, um, and secrets are really hardworking guys. And they'll be. So they have certain. They had. I'm sure it's changed since they became on the homeland, but they had certain um, jurisdictions, and one of them, in fact, one of the cases. They they were 
child pornography fell under their jurisdiction somehow. And actually, my case was one of the first, maybe the first in New York. What I did was when AOL was big, I went into a chat room as a little kid. Oh, God. And I got, I went to the housing projects because I still had connections in the projects from managers and they remembered me as a, you know, running around down there. And I got a nice apartment. In one, there's, a, there's a project called uh, Strauss Houses, which isn't a bad project. It's all alone. It's in the 20s. It's one building. And it's not a bad building. So what I did was I used to chat guys up, tell them how old I was, a little kid, 12 years old, 11, whatever. Um, and then they'd want to talk to me. So I, it, was, it was hard not to talk to them. They wanted to verify who I was. So I got a girl to talk to them, a female agent. And he thought the female agent was a little boy with a little boy voice, even though it was a girl. Oh, on the phone. Yes. Oh. Right. And then I'd have them come to the, come to, I'd give them the, the apartment that the projects, the housing guys gave me. You were Chris Hansoning everybody. Right. And we locked up, so, talk about pedophiles, we locked up so many people like that. Crazy. Ridiculous. And this was with the Secret Service. We did that with the Secrets, and then we had uh, other electronic crimes. Yeah, because like I said, they, counterfeiting was part of their, uh, jurisdiction because they were part of a tre treasury how did you get assigned to them um we had two detectives assigned to the electronic crimes and two detectives assigned to the west african task force what was the west going after the nigerians for what the, all kinds of fraudulent stuff whatever they were doing bank frauds and uh -huh. um remember they used to do those uh those letters that they needed to bring black you ever heard of the black money scams when they take no. the money and I don't know if I should say his name, but a very famous actor, old actor from like the thirties, his nephew got scammed twice by the Nigerians for big money, really big money. I, I, you want to know, should, should I say yeah, the actor's yeah, name? Yeah. James Cagney's. James Cagney. His nephew. He was the guy. He was, he would have kicked his nephew's ass. So what happened? Black, this it's it's called a black money. Yeah, they transfer? did. I don't remember if they did the black money on him. They scammed him. So after the, I think the first one was. So what they do is somehow they approach these people. I don't know how they find them, or it might have been uh, like random through the mail. This was before emails. Um, although emails, I think, were out there, but mostly it was through regular snail mail. Um, but him, they got twice. The first time, I think, was a black money scan. And what that is is they tell, they say they they they're being chased out of Nigeria, and they got all this money that they got to take out of Nigeria. Now, they so the government doesn't realize it's money. They have to paint it black and they put it in a uh, a chest. And now they bring it and they show you the chest. Now, you see the money. It's little piece of cardboard painted black painted black and it, you know it looks like money obviously but it's not it's paper but when you touch it shouldn't you know yeah well they say because the chemical hardens it up and all that shit it doesn't feel the same but then they make you actually go and pick one out they say yeah grab one <sighs> and you grab one and then they put a chemical on it and it turns into a hundred dollar bill because they do like a sleight of hand thing so now you got to, oh my God, that's a $100 bill. Yeah, they're all $100 bills. Pick another one. And you pick, and okay. So not, they approach you now. What do they want from so you? So now you could hold on to this 
chest full of all these hundreds. Maybe it's a million dollars. But the chemical costs $50,000 to clean this money off. Give me the 50000 Hold this money. We can't do anything without this money. Hold the money and give me the 50000 And then you make sixty or something like that. Well, even more. It's like a million dollars there. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So they, they were doing, this was just a... That's just one of the common scams. scam out of yeah, Nigeria, it happened yeah. to be. Yeah. So there were some people that were getting hit by that, and the Secret Service was investigating. Yeah, they do that. But how, again, did you get assigned there? It was just your captain once again? Like, yeah, oh, they had, two, they, had two, they had two detectives in the West African and in the electronic crimes, and they needed a boss over there. Fr- who was from the NYPD? Yeah. Was that because a lot of the targeted people were in New York? Yeah, and I, my detectives were the detectives were New York guys, so they needed they they never had a boss there, but something I think went a little shitty, and they needed a, they wanted a a, sod, uh, a PD guy there with the with the secrets and with the cops. You did a lot of interesting. Yeah, you were you had a very diverse background. Yeah, cases to go after, and that was was that the last stop there, and then you left the force. Yeah, well, then nine my my office was in the nine eleven was in the World Trade Center. Wait, what? My office, Secret Service office, was in the World Trade Center. Were you there that time? I was. Yeah, I was in the building when it went down. My when, it, o- my, when it went down. Yeah, my office was in seven, but the obviously seven burnt to the ground. That ain't the one that got hit. <clears throat> but I was in the building, the first building when it fell down. You were inside it. Yeah, I was actually. I was. I was a little late for work that day, uh, and. I felt I was in the tunnel. Uh, I want to say the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, and uh, I knew what was. I knew the plane had hit. I, I think when I got out, the second plane already hit, and I was able to get behind a fire truck that was going through the tunnel. I put my siren on, um, and I followed the fire truck out. And I pulled as soon as I got out of the tunnel, I just pulled over. In fact, I couldn't. At the end of the day, I couldn't find my car. I didn't even know where I parked, and um, I actually called my as I'm running to the building. I used the, the cell phones were out. So I went in a bodega. I, I ID'd myself. I was like, I use the phone. And he said, yeah, go ahead. I called my wife because I figured she would be worried. I said, no, no, I wasn't in the building. I said, but I'm going in now. Um, I'm, but I'm fine. So that, okay. Why were you going in? To help people? To help people. Yeah. And then when I went in to help people, and I'm, I actually went up one flight of steps, but there was a lot of people coming down, and I was like fighting the traffic, screwing them up. So I said, "I'm not going on that." So I found another staircase, and I was going up, and this I started to go up. The building shook, and the building came down. So I'm on the ground. I don't even know where I was, to be honest. And um, sometime, you know, shortly after, I guess it came down. Somebody put a light up, and they said, "If you could see the light." go to the light, you know, walk towards the light. And uh, I was on my back, basically. And I got up, and I felt around. I felt the car that was turned over because the tires were on top instead of on the bottom. And I I see this guy. I, I don't see him. He grabs me, and he takes me into another building. I don't even know where I was. To this day, I don't know where I was. But I knew the guy. He was actually in the Austin Explosion team. That was when I was in... Uh, missing person, their office was right next to us. They were part of special investigation. Um, and he recognized me, of course. Well, maybe he didn't. I was all covered in white shit, but I recognized him. So he takes me into this building, and 
there's a guy throwing up, really throwing up next to me. Now, that normally doesn't bother me, but it bothered me then, and mm-hmm. I threw up, violently threw up. And I actually think that's what saved my life because that I got so everything that I must have swallowed came up. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear, you know, because I was throwing up stuff, black garbage came out of me, and I I tell I honestly think that's what saved my life. This guy throwing up next to me. So you were you didn't even. It sounds like you weren't really even sure where you were when it happened, but you were like right there in the vicinity, and so maybe you were. By the edge of where I, because it all came, like it came down straight, but then it all went everywhere. Right. So and you was, were just next to, you remember a car and a guy. Well, I don't remember, I felt the car. And, <clears throat> well, when I went, went in, and uh, FD had the floor plans on the floor of the, of the lobby. And a bunch of fire chiefs were there around the floor plans. And people weren't really walking in, everybody was running out. Mm. Um, but I had my shield out, because they wouldn't even let me... In the perimeter, initially, until I, you know, the cops had the perimeter. Yeah, yeah, to identify. So I identified myself, and they let me in. And then, I, same thing with the building, and I ran in. And then, like I said, I went up the wrong staircase, and I went to a different staircase. And that's when the building went down. So I was, like, in the lobby, or basically right outside the lobby. That's fucking wild. Yeah, it was crazy. And then my wife, who I had called earlier, knew I was in the building. She, she thought was, you were dead. Yeah, they, everybody thought I was dead. How long before you were able to A long to get time, because I didn't even think to call them, because I totally forgot. I told Liz, I remember, so I told her I'm fine. Not thinking that I told her I'm fine, but I'm going in the fucking building. Yeah, so that was a bad day for them. That's just like, whenever I talk to people who were, who were there, it's just a whole, it's a whole nother thing. But like, you know you're able to talk about it now. Yeah. I, that's something I look for, you know, when someone comes in here and talks about it, like, okay, they're able to talk about it because there's some people, Man. you don't bring it up. You know, you may know they were there. Right. It's like, you don't, you don't, because yep. the shit you see, I, I got to think, you know, the guys who you see a lot, who can, who are from the law enforcement side, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, part of it could be like whatever the background was in law enforcement. You know, maybe because they've had to see so much other shit, right? That there's a part of them that's hardened to it. But I, there's no way that even 20 years later, 21 years later, is like it's every bit as absurd now as it was then. It's like what crazy, you know? Like I always told the story. There was a guy 15 years later. I was I was at Bayonne Golf Club right across the mm-hmm. right across the the river playing with somebody over there and the one guy we were sitting on the back deck grabbing a bite and the one guy looked just said it and he's like there used to be two buildings right there right there's not now and i don't know you know you've seen this a million times but even all those years later you're just like fuck wow yeah it's it's a wild thing it is crazy man so wow you've really had you've had a life and and (laughs) you've been out of you've been out of the force now for how long I got out in uh, 2003. Was part of it September 11th? Is that what you were alluding to? You were just like done after that? Um, I don't know. Not really. I don't, I don't know. It just, you know, I felt like it was my time, you know? Mm. That's it. I mean, I had a hard time. I don't know. The PD is like any other big organization, politi- very political at some points, you know? So I think I... Um, 
did what I had to do, and I was fine leaving. And what have you been doing since? Well, I wrote that book yeah. not too long after. Well, and your book's called Alphaville? Yeah, Alphaville, 1988. Um, and I own a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Academy in Santa Wow. Yeah. So did you practice a lot of that when you were active, I assume? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What got you into that? Like everybody else, the UFC. Watching the early, watching the Hoist Gracie. And then I met Henzo, his cousin, uh, and we became friends and... And you're like, I could use this in the job, too. Yeah. And, you know, met good friends, good guys out of it. So it was cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's such a it's such a great skill for people to have. I had Amanda Levy in here. She's like, I forget if it's like three or five, but she's one of the top ranked in the world. She's the one that took down Gabby uh, Garcia, Gabby, like I was telling you. Right. And you just watch that, and you're like, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, the skill it takes yeah, is, that's is amazing. Yeah. But it'd be great. It would be great, by the way. Like, I always think about that because my, bu- my buddy's dad is a longtime state trooper in New Jersey, and he teaches, like, the jiu-jitsu classes and stuff like that. I'm like, damn, every cop should know this stuff, yeah, absolutely, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's but, crazy. You know how much could be avoided if they had, like, I'd pay, I'd pay tax dollars for that, for cops to have that yeah, training? Yeah, I mean, they don't get the training. It's really it's sad, you yeah. know? They, they talk about defunding and all that stuff. You know, guys, you pull your gun, it don't mean shit. No, you pull your gun. I tell you now, I'm not. I'm not listening now. What? Now you got to put it back. Well, you <laughs> can't shoot a guy if he's not, you know, actively yeah. killing someone or killing you. And what if you could avoid that situation totally that's because right. you're trained? That's right. What was the one? I want to say it was in like Atlanta, like a McDonald's or something like that, like two years ago, where the guy just went the the perp just went at the cops and they went towards the ground and suddenly he got shot. If they had had hand to hand training, right. No gun ever comes out. That was a joke. That would have been like, oh, look at you. That's cute. Boop. Right. You know what I mean? And it's like, then you look at it, you're like, wow, there you go. Well, their lives are over. You know, right. and it doesn't have to, there's got to be a way to fix that. But I don't know. And I, I don't have all the answers there. Maybe no. we'll figure it out. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Listen, man, Mike, this was, this was great. Really, really enjoyed it. I've had a hell of a ride. Thank you for sharing it. You got, you. Me, you got me going down the satanic cults rabbit hole <laughs> after this. I'm going to have to check that out. But what was the other thing? You want me to look at an Angelina Jolie video? Yes. And the Geraldo Rivera Willowbrook thing. Right. All right. Everybody go check that out. You know the drill. Thank you, sir. Thank you, man. And people can get your book on Amazon yep. and anywhere they get their books pretty much, right? Yes. Cool. All right. On that note, everyone else, you know what it is. Give it a thought. Get back. Peace.